Crank up the music, turn on the blue lights, and give yourself over to your most alienating vocational obsessions because it's time once again to go manhunting uh, straight down the manhole. That's right. Uh, somehow this is this is still going on, <sighs> and uh, we're gonna we're gonna see this project through uh, as we work through the filmography of Michael Mann, a singular director whose action dramas uh, remain uh, beloved. Uh, fetish objects, I suppose I have to admit, uh, for me and at least two of our guests uh, today. Uh, first, we have our friend, once again, Dia Latina. Hi, Rob Zassini. Lacina. See, it just stuck in my head, Dia. <laughs> this is the problem. Uh, we also have Alex Navarro. Thank you for having me back. Uh, I'm here to put on my dad shorts. Let's uh, Let's get on this boat and find ourselves a killer. Uh, speaking of dad shorts, a man no stranger to them, Patrick Klepek. Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't even know if I, in my extremely thin profile, can put off, pull off the, the shortness of the shorts at the end of the movie. But boy, do I want to try and see what the, how the world responds. I think every one of these podcasts that you do, I think you need to add one of, like, your man, man hunting, man hole. This is, you're on the fourth one, right? Is this the fourth? This, this is the, the third. This is the third. Okay, so you're, we're missing it. I'm just I'm pitching that out there. Was once I leave here, I can't I can't influence th- that anymore. But I'm just as if I was to leave anything, I think you should just be adding to the legacy of your intro every time we come back. That's a good point. Uh, so yeah, just strap the strap those dad shorts on uh, <laughs> for your for your manhunt. Uh, and of course, we have Ricardo Contreras on the boards. So we are in the Miami Vice era. And we are a little out of sequence here uh, because by this point, Michael Mann's career as a director is going to get a shot in the arm because of his association with the Miami Vice uh, TV show. And in a lot of ways, when you look at the movie we're talking about today, uh, Manhunter, which is his adaptation of Thomas Harris's Red Dragon, uh, and I think it's the first film adaptation of any of the Lecter stories. It is. um, You can see... That like this is very much what people I think tend to think of when they think of like Michael Mann's '80s period. Uh, this is very much a a film made in the throes of uh, Miami Vice aesthetics in in some ways. Uh, we are so we're a little out of sequence. I think we are going to go back and talk about some of the TV projects he did between The Keep and this. But I think this does a nice job of kind of closing the loop on his first series of feature films, because you can, I think, draw a line from this through to his other works. But I think it also uh, does connect to thematically and stylistically to his TV work in some interesting ways. And then after this, he, I think, changes profile a bit as a director. His next movie after this is Last of the Mohicans. We're starting to get into the really great shit uh, from from Michael Mann. And that doesn't feel like anything that he's he's done to date, uh, I, I'd argue. Uh, so we're going to we're gonna close the loop on his feature films uh, with, with Manhunter. And then, and I'm really excited about this. I've not watched any of Miami Vice in like, 25 years so i have no idea what we are going to encounter um but for today what we're talking about is uh yeah manhunter which was remade by brett ratner as red dragon keeping the book's original title uh everyone involved with the production is is quick to point out the reason it's called manhunter is because 
the De Laurentiis uh, film company, had some concerns that if you named a movie Red Dragon, people would figure it would be like a martial arts movie. I The moment I saw that, man, so I specifically had in a, just a, a physical reaction to seeing Dino De Laurentiis' name on screen because mm-hmm. he is notorious for having hawking up so many different IPs, specifically King IPs in the 70s and 80s and like being like hand in hand with sort of like the rise of King as like a like like a like the king of ad, like like also so many adaptations from his work. So seeing his name here when I'm so closely associated with like, let's load up Firestarter and watch some shitty schlock mm-hmm. that Dino put out because this is the budget he had and then realizing Oh, yeah, like he was probably had his hand in a thousand pots in this era when like Dino was like one of the like many like sort of like king like producers doing things. So seeing his name here, like I paused the film and be like, no, right. That's not the same Dino. And it's like, oh, it's Dino. It is. And just two years before this, he did Dune. (laughs) That's right. So like, yeah, this is. Because right, I looked I, in the Wikipedia for this, that like he tried D- Dino, who like uh, when he worked with someone, then just tried to keep working with them. Like you'll often see, like filmmakers, like just worked with Dino for for a long time. He tried to get Lynch to work on this film, which is like wild to think of. God, I'm trying to imagine like him applying sort of like the blue velvet era, like you know Lynchisms to this movie, and I just I can't do it. Like well, I, this movie is so specifically Michael Mann in my mo- in my head that I can't imagine anyone else touching it. So Lynch doesn't do the movie, but then like directly replies to it thirty years later with Mindhunter, uh, which is like informed by a lot of the same material because Mann does his research. Uh, with, not Lynch. I'm sorry, that was complete. I've Fincher. That was I got Fincher. Yes, yes, yes. Kato, edit that part out. I got my David okay. confused. No, 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 no. <laughs> Um, so the, the thing about this, uh, I, I don't know the Lecter stories real well. I am, con- here's a point I'm confused about. I'll, I'll just throw it out, throw it out here. So this movie opens after Will Graham has stopped Lecter's killings, uh, arrested him. And the movie's actually about him being sort of summoned back to profiler work. Does that mean it's uh, post Silence of the Lambs in the canon? This is my question. Like, is... Is this post? But no, 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 it's not. So the way it from what I recollect and I I, so I've only seen the movies and I've seen a little bit of Hannibal, the TV series. I've never read the Harris books, but what this is the first book and Mm. the the story like Will Graham is the centerpiece of Red Dragon and it is about him coming and like, you know, talking to Lecter. But there aren't I don't think any of the Harris books are about Lecter's like years of serial killing like the way the oh. Red Dragon remake starts is with the the opening scene of that movie is Ed Norton's Will Graham uh, it's the moment he realizes Lecter is a serial killer and him actually attacking Graham and then it kind of cuts to sort of where Manhunter picks up which is you know he's already out of the game and then you know he tries to bring him back in so the gotcha. Hannibal TV series is the only one that deals with like Hannibal before he ends up incarcerated and becomes like the, uh, you know, Minotaur of the maze. Uh, you have not in, watched in that whole ways. show, Alex. Like, I mean, I, that show was made for me and you. Like, I'm, it's, I'm genuinely shocked. It's not because I don't like it. It's because I watched a couple of episodes when it was on TV, but I just never got into a rhythm with it. And it's one of those like on my list to sit down and watch I, the whole thing. I think thing. if you start it again. 
yeah. you wouldn't you wouldn't stop. Yeah, um, I pro- you're just, probably it, right. It is it is truly one of like just the most visually arresting shows I've ever watched, and it also constantly is like they let them air this on CBS, like the NBC. CSI network it was on NBC, NBC. which is also way, inexplicable. Like, it, it's it is horribly anyway. Hannibal, very good show. All right, so we we open with um, so yeah, this this all takes place after uh, Graham has had his encounter with with Lecter. And the arc of this film is he is summoned uh, back to service by his friend to stop a new serial killer who is wiping out entire families in the southeast, uh, the Tooth Fairy, mm-hmm. uh, but who in the book, uh, you know, gives his title. He's, he's the Red Dragon. And right there, you have a sort of interpretive uh, distinction, how he sees himself versus how the world uh, regards him. He is put on the trail of the Tooth Fairy. Uh, they attempt to smoke him out with a ruse. It goes spectacularly bad. Uh, midway through the film, as he has been forced to put his family into, like, not quite witness protection, but the FBI's had to move them to a secure location to protect them. Uh, the board is clear. We take a brief T-tour and we meet the serial killer, uh, Francis Dollarhide, and we get we spend like about a day with him, and it's like yes. the best day of his life, and it's also <laughs> like, possible, yeah, and it's also like you you see you get a sense of like the sense of tragedy around the character, but also like why he is a like purely malevolent uh, force in the film, and then Will Graham has his breakthrough insight, the whole thing culminates in a rather uneven action climax uh, with some interesting stylistic ticks uh, <laughs> yes. tossed in. And uh, at the end, the tooth fairy has been stopped and Will Graham uh, resumes his life with his family. Uh, but I want to start, start with this opening because I think one of the things that is, one of the things that I, I dig about this movie is that we are now inured to serial killers. I think just in, on TV, in movies, and a lot of film and TV, I think, is really fixated on, like, the aesthetics of serial killers. Like, they just kind of glory in the... Look at this weirdo. Yeah. Look how and, weird he is. And I think what Manhunter does from the start, and I and I think it, it, like, I think it continues this throughout, is that for as aesthetically as, as aesthetics a filmmaker as man is at times i don't think he ever loses sight of the actual like monstrousness of what is happening here which is that people like entire families all their connections all their potential all their hope are being destroyed um for the gratification of someone's like psychotic delusion um and their their vanity and so we, we have this opening where we we get the killer's point of view uh, in this grainy, almost like, uh, you know, video reconstruction of the crime uh, type sequence as the killer sort of ascends the stairs, looks into the children's room and then stands over uh, a husband and wife waiting for the wife to wake up. And when she does, we cut to uh, Graham sitting in a perfectly composed shot he and Dennis Farina uh his his old his old boss uh from from the bureau facing different directions just in case you mm-hmm. had any questions about uh where these characters were in relation to each other as Farina is trying to get him to look at the file and we you know there's there's no preliminaries we've gotten a sense of what's happening and uh Farina is there knowing 
that if he can just get Will Graham to look at the victims and humanize them, um, then Will Graham will have no choice but to come back. Uh, how how did how did these opening scenes land for you? Do you think do you find it corny? Does does the humanity of of Graham Mann's uh, perspective come through? I think for me it does. I will say one thing we should uh, emphasize here at the top is that we watched the director's cut version mm-hmm. of Manhunter, which does extend some scenes here, including this one. Um, the original intro is a little shorter. There is a little less dialogue between, uh, Farina and, and Will Graham. But honestly, I think this version of the scene is better. Uh, it works. I mean, I, the, if you listen to the commentary, man is very heavy with like the, you know, there's a lot of symbolism here. There's a lot of them sort of talking in ways that are designed to let you know exactly who Will Graham is and why he is, is reluctant without actually having to just say that outright, uh, and I think Farina and Peterson are good enough to sort of carry that dialogue forward and make those characters interesting right out of the gate. I think lesser actors might have struggled with making this scene at all interesting or play well. Yeah, I think uh, there's definitely I think I think Peterson in particular throughout this film is asked to do a lot because there are a lot of moments in this film where he has to narrate his train of thought and. Uh, man even sort of concedes this and man's argument. And I'm, I'm not sure if I buy this in the commentary uh, that we have found, we have, we have, we've found some value in though, not as much as you might think, but in man's commentary, his argument is that manhunter is kind of made before there's a, a serial killer craze, let's say. And so concepts that are now familiar and commonplace in TV and movies were not back then. And so there's, a, <laughs> I don't, and I'm like, like, I don't know if that's the true. Third, the third time that Will has to like, talk, like talk as though he has inhabited the person, the psychic personality of the serial killer and be like, and I know you were watching through the window. I know what you were doing. I was like, okay, the first time I could, I get, I get like, I don't know. That was, a, that was a little much even for me, even given man's uh, uh, explanation for why. Yeah. yeah I, I think for people who that doesn't work for are weak and won't survive winter because it's perfect. (laughs) And, and, and it's, it establishes the tone of Will Graham. Every other, the other two Will Graham performances all fucking bring that back. Clearly it works. I mean, he has, he has unhinged. Like, I think that's part of part of it, right? Like if if you, if you, I think part of the, you can watch this movie and sort of gloss over often serial killer uh, uh, media, like modern serial killer media, like the the people who are involved are just detectives. They're you. You're a, they're a surrogate to walk through the puzzle to get solved. And right. a little more of what's happening here is like, no, like the motherfucker that's going to solve this puzzle is broken. Like he is, and he's, he has to break himself in order to do it. And so I am, I actually am like deeply sympathetic to your, to your argument there in that like, <laughs> To portray, you know, Will Graham, although I'm unfamiliar with the books, like as anything other than like kind of like a a weirdo himself. And like, why would you know? Yeah, maybe he can pull it together in front of the other cops. But when he's off doing his thing, he's going to slip into like a totally different odd mode that. Okay, yeah, I concede my argument. Like, I'm actually, I'm actually on board with well, that. <laughs> you know, like I, Michael, Michael Mann, like, kind of keeps rehashing this throughout the opening volley of the commentary too. But like, you know, we have the, the serial killer who can operate, you know, 
in society normally and no one really knows the difference and then but they're actually like this explosively violent person and that is what will graham does all the time he can't express his emotions and then when he finally does when he's on the scene he is just overwhelming with you know they just they just swell up and explode out of him and the thing I think I agree with man on is not that there wasn't a lot of serial killer media. There totally was. It's just that a lot of it was like slasher movies. You right. know, it was a lot of things where it's just it's just the killer is there and you're there for the thrills. The thing that hadn't been portrayed a great deal up to this point was the idea of the criminal profiler, which in almost all media is an almost magical personality. It is a person that like even if they don't actually have a supernatural ability, their whole thing is that they have to be able to get into the mind of the serial killer. It's all Sherlock it, Holmes kind of bullshit. Like, well, that, like it's even beyond sort of the Sherlock Holmes thing. Like the thing I go back to a lot and Patrick, you, 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 this is maybe a touchstone for you as well. There was a show that Chris Carter put out called millennium. In the <laughs> oh, late yeah. 90s. oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Let me, let me tell you right now. I fucking love millennium. It is mm-hmm. one of the dorkiest shows ever, but yep. it is, it, it is a show about a roving freelance criminal profiler who literally has a psychic ability to see what the killer sees. <laughs> and by that point it was kind of old hat, but I enjoyed the way that show kind of turned some of that stuff on its head. And there's even an episode where like he meets a hack, uh, sci-fi novelist played by Charles Nelson Riley named Jose Chung, who decides to write a book about a freely like freelance roving criminal profiler and how stupid an idea that is and just turning it into the the dumbest fucking thing in the world. All that shit, it, it becomes incredibly old hat. But here it is actually, I think, kind of a novel concept in 86. They have not done a lot with this. And I think the way that man portrays this within the confines of his, you know, sort of filmic experience up to this point, it is over the top. But Peterson sells it. And I think that it works in a way that I I think a lot of stuff that came after just sort of doesn't just by virtue of how corny it eventually became. Well, and at this point, like Peterson really is known for being a stage actor. And so he does bring that stage actor quality. He can he can he can do those these like, you know, ridiculous monologues that work on stage and aren't usually done in film, um, which he does. And, you know, I think like back to your point is we are seeing like kind of, you know, the the creation of that profiler as like you know the this like the mystic version of sherlock mm-hmm. holmes where it's like because like holmes is very much like a response to you know like r- rationality will save us you know right pure raw intellectualism will guide us through the horrors of you know the 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 waste of outside of civilization um you know Poirot is kind of the same dude but like here we get, you know, these like touches of like, OK, there is something that it is like, you know, extra sensory to these people. And then then we get like, you know, you know, all the way into the, like, you know, the present where now we do, like you know, like with Millennium, we do have just the psychic cop. like mm-hmm. The person who is literally has the divine power to see yeah. what, what the killer sees. <laughs> That's right, Lance Henriksen, like, you right? know, even like the, the what the Laurel K. Hamilton books where it's just like, no, yes, no, it's a vampire cop. <laughs> like that like yeah so um, Dia there's something else I want to talk about in this sequence which um, yeah, first of all I, I find a, a touching detail even though it's a little, little bit on the nose is Will Graham building a little uh, nesting shelter for turtle eggs um, or or it might be I, I think it's turtles because they're buried yeah it is turtles um, yeah uh, for, to keep predators from from getting at them uh, and trying to explain like how many things you know try to get at these uh, sort of uh, breeding grounds 
And so he and his he and his son uh, finish building this little shelter. But then we get a sequence where he discusses his uh, choice with his wife, uh, Molly, played by Kim Greist. And we get our first real taste of the extremes of like color and lighting we're going to see in this movie. But I think these domestic sequences are probably the most pegged at 11 uh, that exist in the film. And that's saying something um, we get this incredibly blue frame. Um, and yeah, you know, it was, you know, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Dante Spinati's uh, photography for this and the different modes he's deploying. Uh, and in particular, this approach to having domestic life, just swimming in blue. It's really, it's an interesting approach, especially because, um, uh, you know, this movie takes place, you know, like with this part of Will, Will Graham's domestic life is on, you know, Captiva Island for this, um, which is, you know, this, this this kind of little Gulf of Mexico side of Florida, um, you know, beautiful little island, um, you know, near Sanibel, where celebrities like to buy beach homes. Um, and so we do get blue is being associated with safety and comfort and marital bliss and love and things like that um and just kind of the idea of just surrounding the scene and the way that will's island is surrounded by water there's a whole lot you can draw into this um because of that i think it's weird um visually i think it's weird but i think it i'm not opposed to it is it a good weird I think so. I think it's one of those things where it is jarring and it is very on the nose, but so much of this movie feels like it needs to be on the nose, especially because, you know, we are doing things that are kind of new for the genre here. Um, And, you know, it is the 80s and like we did Mm -hmm. weird shit like this. Uh, So Michael Mann is Michael Mann is playing with some ideas and he's got Dante Spinotti who's coming along to like help him realize those weird ideas better um his first u.s feature uh yeah by, by the way um so this is his first time on a u.s production and in the in the interview they have with him on the uh on the on the blu-ray um man is there some ambiguity about how he views this entire production because he was like yeah it was my first uh first time with uh, uh with an american movie production and seeing how they do things and it, working with Michael Mann was so interesting. Everything I've seen about <laughs> Spinotti as a as a cinematographer is that he absolutely will do whatever you need him to do to the best of his abilities, even if he thinks it's a silly idea. Um, yeah, one of the things one of the things I did was what, but for this is um, I I couldn't I couldn't deal with most of the commentary, so I just didn't. But I did rewatch. Um, uh, Ratner's uh, Red Dragon, and because um, Spinotti was the the DP on that as well, and the disparity between the two is just so stark. Oh um, yeah, like I'll, I'll just say for the record, I think Red Dragon. Uh, fuck Brett Ratner, just up at the top here. Fuck him all the way yeah, around. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> but Red Dragon is his best film, and we are grading on a scale here. But, like, it is the best movie he ever produced. It is also still kind of horse shit compared to this one. Um, the, other, the other thing is, like, the thing I had to remind myself is, like, Spinotti was the photographer on Mohicans, too. Like, yeah, yeah. This is, this, want- is, this is the start of his experience with Michael Mann and 
you know. You did yeah. at least three films with him, right? Yeah, this, three or four. Uh, he did he did Heat also. Higgins, Heat. Insider. Didn't he do Collateral? He might have done Collateral also. Yeah. So, yeah. So, like, the guy has a lot of different modes uh, for sure. But here he's definitely uh, playing playing pretty pretty broadly. Um, so with with the other thing I like here is that uh, we are in a phase where I think the role, the roles for women and man protagonist lives are going to continue to sort of trend downward mm-hmm. uh, across a lot of these works. But I do like that um, Molly, we don't get a lot of scenes with her, but I think the ones we do get are good. And I think one of the things I enjoy here is that she kind of refuses multiple times to play the loyal, concerned wife role that Graham kind of keeps trying to box her into where he's like, you know, I don't know. I'm, I, I would, you know, could go back to this case a little bit and they wouldn't, I wouldn't, I barely be involved. What do you think? And she's just like, it sounds like you've already made a choice and you're just pretending to ask me, um, which is correct, right? Like his, his view is it, it, the choice is made, uh, but she also knows why it was made, right? That, that she, she knows that, uh, if he doesn't go back, more people will die. Like entire families will probably die because he wasn't on this case. And so she like she's sort of balancing like what's our happiness as a family versus, uh, you know, society's safety. Um, well, you, know, you also get the sense that if he turns it down, how will that impact him? To even put aside like mm-hmm. the people who will die, like he he's built in a certain way to do this and like that's the whole idea of like well if you give him a taste like what what's he gonna do like he's he can't walk away he'll walk away but it'll it'll break him like and that's the whole point of giving him a taste is like and she's entered into this life she seems to kind of understand it you know it doesn't mean she's happy that doesn't mean she's but she does seem content like she's even willing over the phone to be like so what do you think about uh like the accent wall like uh what what color do you think you know she's like willing to somehow except a certain like try and inject normalcy into something that she knows is like abnormal from from the go. I mean, you know, like she's they're trying to settle down after he was nearly killed from a from Hannibal Lecter. I think she is one of the better examples in a long line of women who are there to sort of complicate the lives of incredibly professional men uh, in the sense that, like you said, she is not served up as a person who is there to weep and wail over the fact that, you know, their life is being upended by this person having to go back for one last job or what have you. Like she's there. She's a she feels like a person. She feels and like you said, she feels like a person who understands this life, even if she doesn't like it. There are so many opportunities in that screenplay where they could have turned her into exactly that kind of caricature and they don't do it. And I do appreciate that, at least about this one. So. The other thing we've we've talked about a little bit is this is a genre that sort of gets debased as it turns into various forms of like psychic cop and copaganda mm-hmm. procedurals. Uh, the thing I dig here is that Will does not seem he is the least copy cop in this in this movie. We get a taste of like, the regular cops when he goes down to Atlanta to sort of resurvey the crime scene. And we get a sense of why guys like this are important, and it is because uh, the cops do not have the wherewithal to deal with cases like this. They don't have their thinking is too direct. It's too linear. Uh, we we get a briefing sequence as they begin uh, laying out what they know, which is very little. And Graham's ability to put himself in the shoes of a killer and 
actually begin to like share their fantasy. This is his insight is that you need to understand what the fantasy is that the killer is serving in order to understand what the killer is doing. Um, that that's going to be the key to anticipating and building the connections between uh, them and their selection of victims. Uh, but the cops we meet, they're not like nakedly inept, but they're not good. Like the police do no. not fare well in this movie. Like the cops are mostly unimaginative. They're deeply complacent. Um, we we get a we we get a view of the Atlanta PD in here where they're doing canvassing. Fine, it's whatever. But they missed clues uh, because they missed some obvious like the signature. There's a lot of detail. Again, man doesn't have much interest in lingering over the violence inflicted on victims, um, which I think a lot of later serial killer films definitely do. Like watch watch the direction Ridley Scott goes with Hannibal. Mm-hmm. Um, where he's like, yeah, want to see some people get disemboweled and audiences by and large were like, yeah, we do. Like, <laughs> absolutely. I do want to see Ray Liotta's brain. Yeah. Hell yes. <laughs> I want, I want to see Anthony Hopkins just wreck some shit. Um, that, I mean, that, 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 well, that then Hannibal cool. comes or the show comes along and it's just mm-hmm. like, let's just do art murder like every episode. <laughs> Right, right. Well, that, that was one of the more uh, fascinating things about the opening of this film was the fact that, you know, one, this is like long before, you know, a term like found footage or even, you know, is coined or like POV is is popularized through like the use of like, you know, Sam Raimi and other things to like sort of like inhabit the perspective of some sort of antagonist. But the way it cuts and it just never comes back to it, like you only just see the result of it. Like there is actually like no indulgence in what has happened to these people. It is only just the blood splatter. And even in like the opening, it's, it's far creepier that it just cuts to a still of the woman looking at the camera. I mean, I, I put them, my, my wife is coming down to watch part of it. And uh, she was like, just start the movie. And I was like, yeah, okay. Like there'll be like an intro and like an opening credits. And you know, we'll just like settle in in the first couple of minutes. And instead, like I walk out and I'm like, what the fuck is going on in this, in this movie? And I had to pause it and be like, okay, actually I think we need to sit down because there's some sort of weird opening uh, happening that I, I, I was not prepared for. But I think like, that's really telling like a really interesting creative choice that is so it's not uh, reflexive to where the genre goes in the future because there's no way for man to predict that. But to see the, like the lines it takes for itself at the time is just so interesting relative to where right even this even this franchise goes immediately in the well, future because it's all there. There's no reason he couldn't have done it. Um, but uh, he just he just chooses not to, and and it's better for it. I think. And we yeah we 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 you know we open with inhabiting you know the 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 killer the tooth fairy. And then we don't we see kind of, you know, his his handiwork and we get like him kind of more circuitously described by Will Graham throughout it. But he doesn't show up until what? Like like an hour, two, hour and a half into the movie. Yeah. 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 And that's that's another big difference between this and Red Dragon is that Red Dragon almost is the Francis Dollarhide movie. Right. As much as it is like a Hannibal Lecter movie. Well, he cast Fines as him, which right? is a, it, I mean, yeah, Ray Fiennes is fine in Red Dragon, but like the the way they portray him and the way they sort of linger on a lot of his personal life and sort of build up to a lot of some of the stuff that we actually do see in Manhunter, it's like fine. But it like I understand why a filmmaker would feel the instinct to try and flesh that stuff out. 
But I think that man's approach here is more interesting because it is really much more the Will Graham movie. It is about the professional. It is about the person trying to suss this stuff out. And I think he keeps the stuff that is most integral to sort of portraying what Dollar Hyde is without getting overly precious about the audience needing to know all the reasons why he is this way and what brought him to this place in his life and this, you know, this psychosis. And I I, just, I don't know, like, I, I think at a certain point, Red Dragon is just playing far too much to the cheap seats, whereas Michael Mann just does not really do a lot of that. The thing about that is that my, my one thing is that Michael Mann cuts out all of the weird William Blake bullshit. We don't get that interior. We don't get like everything that Francis Heller Hyde is doing that's present in the books and um, uh, and, and the Red Dragon, the show. Yeah. Um, and I I think it works. I think with what the movie that Michael Mann is making in terms of as an adaptation I feel like it weakens it because the strength of the Thomas Harris novels is how fucking batshit they are and how not serious they are. This is a serious movie, despite its Miami Vice 1980s trappings. (laughs) Um, This is still a very serious version of it, whereas motherfucker eats William Blake's painting. Yes, he does. Like... (laughs) He, he literally assaults eats the two painting. museum staff members, <laughs> and then he, he he consumes William Blake's painting of <sighs> the Red Dragon. That is maybe yeah, the one part. The that is the one part of Red Dragon. I would I would absolutely suggest everyone on this podcast who has not seen that adaptation go see just if just so you can see Ray finds eat a painting. <laughs> I think that is, is a fork really and a funny. knife. Sorry, is it just his hands? He, he just starts tearing it up. Tears I, it I have to know, does he eat a print? Or no, no, it's no, the painting. Heist, it's he, the he painting. The original. Yeah. And that's and, and the, it actually it, it becomes kind of, you know, it, it, it is kind of critical to Francis Dollarhide's like approach because he goes to do it so that he can stop. Right. He's trying to stop himself. Yeah. And like oh. it's like it's like, OK, here's the original work. If I if I consume this, then I will have mastered it. Uh, um, well, I was I, I was going to say, um, like. The thing that not showing a lot, I think man still finds some shocking moments in this. Like, I think when when Graham goes to the crime scene, the house we now we we remember from that opening sequence and he turns he walks into the bedroom and it's got normal just like all the lights are on. All the furniture is mostly gone. It's just it's the residue of the crime scene. When you see the wall of like shattered glass festooned with blood everywhere, like it is even having seen like a million of these movies, like it's shocking. Yeah. In and I think in part because like sometimes a wall like it's it's a trope in video games certainly it's a trope in a lot of movies like oh man the walls just fucked up and covered in blood but here we know this is a family's home right like we, we we draw this connection between those people that we saw briefly in that in that opening this is what remains of them also this kids what, what right happened. like that's yeah. like it's functionally different it's than families. a lot of yeah, yeah like that like often it is we're we're used in. The slasher, the thriller genre, adults getting diced up and, you know, that just, you know, you can kind of gloss over that. But like the moment kids are involved, that like sets the stakes like emotionally a lot higher. And then even just the indifference in which that those scenes are shot. Right. It's not like he walks in and then like, doom, 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 you know, like the way like a lot like a lot of that was like you need to take in how gory this is. Actually, like he just kind of walks in and you just sort of like pan over it and then he heads to the back. I mean, like it's just there's sort of an indifference because of his cold logical sort of analysis as opposed yeah, it's to clinical. Like the, yeah. As opposed to the emotional, even in films like even in media like this, 
they try to present the emotion to the viewer, even if like the detective or the psychic or whatever it is, they themselves don't have that attachment to it. They still try to convey that in the way it's portrayed. And there's just none of that here. And I think the cold detachment makes it so much creepier. Well, and also he's detached in this sequence because he isn't doing his job yet. This is this is interesting because it looks like he's doing his job. He gets some insights from it. Uh, the thing the the Atlanta cops have missed uh, is that he put we it, this movie passes over a lot of details because it doesn't like show it doesn't linger over like what happened to the victims. But like we learned that he's putting little like quarters of mirrors over his his victims eyes uh, and Graham reasons like, well, he's probably touching the victims uh, at various points in this. Uh, and he might have removed his we know he probably removed his gloves uh, at some point. So there's probably prints. And so he finds clues the Atlanta cops missed because they're complacent, but also they just don't think like what would a what would a serial killer do in the sequence? Um, and so we, we sort of get this distinction of there are cops and then there's Will Graham, who sort of occupies the space more as an artist or almost a method actor. And I think, you know, I think in, in film there is sometimes a tendency to turn everything back into a metaphor for various aspects of filmmaking. Um, I think man's work sometimes does this. And I sometimes wonder, I'm curious what you think of this. Like is Will Graham's approach yet another like reflection on like the costs of method acting? Um, Is is the entire thing just an elaborate analogy for like what it is to get in character? Because, you know, we know that Tom Noonan who plays Francis Dollarhide by the way, did reportedly get a little weird on the set of this film. Oh, dude, um, every, every detail I read about how he like treated the cast and like ostracized himself on set was very mm, interesting. Right. And like this, that's weird. Like it, it was in vogue in this moment. But in retrospect, it's all like I think I think yeah, I think I think Jared Leto took care of this forever as a, as a credible <laughs> approach. And I'm also reminded of Pattinson's uh, quote where he's like, you never hear somebody method acting someone lovely. Uh, yeah, it's, it's true. It's always a license <laughs> to behave like shit. But I, but I'm curious, like, is, is this entire thing about the, 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 this arc that Graham is on, is this also an elaborate metaphor for like, this is what it takes to find a character. I don't know if it's intentionally that, but I mean, yeah. I can certainly, like, I think, I think you can certainly draw that metaphor. Like, like you said, it's about, a character getting into the head of another person, which is certainly what method acting is. I just, I'm not sure that that is what man is striving for here. He might find that to be an interesting angle, but I don't know if that is like his elaborate metaphor. Yeah. I don't think it's intentional on man's part. I absolutely believe if you got William Peterson and Tom Noonan doing the commentary, they would have an, a, a lively conversation about this is just like what we do as actors. Mm-hmm. Um, the most important vocation of all. And like, you know, I think of there's there's one interview I saw once with um, Jeff Bridges and he was like, they were asking like, you know, oh, a lot of actors say they bring their their characters home with them. And and he's just like, no, I don't do that. It's a job. I leave it at the job. And then it's like his wife was there and she was just like, no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. And like, you know. I think I think I think actors probably do respond to the character of Will Graham in this way. Um, you know, the knowing the, the few people I know who like decided to try and go into acting. It's just like, yeah, you were this guy. Yeah. So he's he, he finds some clues, but there's this one thing missing, which is the scent. He hasn't 
he he's not really like in his full serial killer detecting mode. And so his next step has nothing to do with the investigation at this point, but his next step is like, I'm going to go hang out with Hannibal Lecter. And I remember, by the way, the first time I saw this movie, I didn't know this was a Lecter movie. Like, I just, I was like, hey, this is a Michael Mann movie I've never seen. Cool. And so when he's like, I need to go, I need to go see Lecter. I was like, what? Who? Mm-hmm. Which Lecter? <laughs> and I was like, this is the, I had no idea there was a secret Hannibal Lecter movie uh, out there um, that, that I, that I'd never heard of. Uh, and so we get, we meet Brian Cox's really singular Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> yeah, that, um, that was more of the takeaway. It was like everyone's talking about succession at the moment because the new season just started them being like, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Cox, one of my favorite actors. Love this dude. And I I understand why Anthony Hopkins is the iconic collector. And I get it. I, I He's very, very good. He is archly creepy in a way that is singular. I, I, I've not gotten the full taste of Mads Mikkelsen's lector yet. And I, it's, but what I have seen, I've been very impressed by. I think Brian Cox might be my favorite lector. I think they're all good though. Like that's part yeah. of what I, what I find interesting about like that, that villain that has been portrayed at this point, like cycled through a bunch of different actors is they, you all see where they're coming from, but I think they all play them slightly differently. I mean, it's like, you know, the heightened, you know, you know, psychopathic intellectual, but I don't know. Like they all come with such different wild f- flourishes. Although I guess this is the, the, the least flourishy of uh, like Mads is very over the top and oh, yeah. Hopkins is very over the top. And, and where it seems like Mads is responding to the fact that, well, why would I try and do what Hopkins did? I'm just going to go in a different direction with a different set of flourishes. Whereas this one is just like way more grounded and then finds its creepiness there. Um, and then of course, like, you know, when you have like the like telephone scene, like you you see like the, the weirdness and like his smarts play out. But I, I just like the fact that they all feel very independent, despite the fact that they're all pulling from from the same character. And I just find that rare when you see I mean, I guess it's a little bit like what you see with like the Joker or something like that. But it, it's it's you see that one with like comic book characters, but it's like much rarer to see that with like this kind of franchise. where you see this many takes on the same character. Yeah. It's, and sorry, go ahead. Dia. Oh, no, you go ahead. Um, because I was just gonna, I, I, I actually I love Brian Cox's performance in this. Again, I don't know that I like him as a Hannibal Lecter. I don't mm. know that he's a, I don't know that he is selling Hannibal Lecter. Um, this is probably more if you have, if you've read the books, he just doesn't feel as convincing a Hannibal Lecter. He feels like a great serial killer. Mm-hmm. Um, but he just kind of feels like mm, a little British. Like, yeah, <laughs> just kind of like it's just like it's really funny because like a lot of a lot of what is doing is it is, you know, Brian Cox is, you know, does some like really good things with his mouth and mm. like, you know, his in his inflection. Um, but ultimately it comes down to it's like he's British. Yeah, you're not wrong. The thing I like about Cox here is that with Hannibal I cannot imagine a world where anyone seeking therapy would sit down with Hannibal Lecter for more than five minutes and then not run screaming out of the room. Well, that's the, that's the thing that's so weird about like Anthony Hopkins and yeah. Mads Mikkelsen. It's just kind of like, it's like, no, I would not engage yeah. you as a therapist. Tell me about your childhood. Like, nope, I'm out. Fuck you. I'm not doing this anymore. Whereas with Cox, like in, in the few scenes that we do get with him in this movie, he reads like a psychiatrist to me. Like I can, he's yeah. disarming in a way 
that feels like a, the person in that profession should be. And, you know, he's just off enough, especially when he's doing that bit with the phone where he uh, hacks it in and he's talking to the secretary and he's like, well, why don't you just go right on down to the G there and find me Will Graham's address? Like, it's just he's charming in the way that I don't think Hopkins is Hannibal, like a little bit in the second Hannibal movie when he's sort of just being, you know, an art professor in Italy. But like, he, like Hopkins is never really that charming. He's always like he's he, there is a knife there that is always stabbing you, even when he's being polite. Like Hopkins doesn't really work until we until society gets horny for serial killers. Mm-hmm. And then then Hopkins like, you know, then then, you know, Hopkins works, you know, for for middle aged women who are horny for serial killers. And then we get Mads Mikkelsen where it's just like now we just have like, you know, pansexual horny for serial killers. <laughs> and Mads Mikkelsen is going to guide us into the glorious future. We all want to fuck a serial be killer now. And so <laughs> make them kiss. <laughs> well, not, if you watch the show Hannibal, I was going to say, isn't that the show that just t- sort of takes the vague homoeroticism of Will Graham and Lecter's dynamic and just makes it the most text? It's yeah, I, yeah, it, y- yes, yeah, yeah, no. It again, is. watch the show. <laughs> I will, I will, I promise, I will. Well, we, we like, won't have to because like this conversation has made me horny to watch uh, <laughs> yes. Silence of the Lambs, which I've never seen. I've never seen Signs of the Lambs. Really? So imagine my wow. confusion being dragged in high school by my uh, by my friends to go see Hannibal with no like no prior connection to Signs of the Lambs, the good movie, to go see Ridley Scott's like murder porn, uh, our tour of Italy. Um, very strange experience. Uh, and then I mean, I got to get on this Hannibal thing. Wow, this is just like when I saw Jewel of the Nile before whatever the other movie was before that one. <laughs> <laughs> Well, when you finish with Michael Mann, we can we can take a detour and we can we can watch the all the all the Lecter movies. Okay, God. Um, but so the thing I really that really does work for me with um, with Cox's performance here and just the take on Lecter is that first of all these scenes have to do a lot because he's not in this movie very much, and so one of the things that I really dig in this first scene with um with Hannibal is that these are both really smart characters who are creating a series of like false fronts and fallback positions in their conversation where they like will is pretending to be there to consult with Hannibal and Hannibal like first is just like trying to be, be the sadist and trying to probe at will like, you know, how are you doing? How are my former victims doing? Trying to hear like, uh, that he's still out there rattling cages or the idea of him is. And then when Will won't play that game and faints like he's disgusted and is going to leave, Hannibal concedes and is curious about the case and asks to see the file. And then they have a very collegial discussion as they as they discuss the um the case. And we do get some good insights from from Hannibal about like how he thinks this would go down, except that as Will is saying, like, those are good points. Hannibal immediately gear shifts and is like, no, they're not. You already knew them. You already thought of them. And like, you know, blows the whistle on the fact that he's also anticipated that like there's nothing that Hannibal's going to glean from these files that Graham hasn't already thought of. Um, and so like the 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 fencing match in this in this conversation, I think is very convincing because the reason I think he ends up working for me as Lecter and why I can by him actually more than Hopkins uh, as like a successful serial killer is 
he exhibits so many like it like a good therapist so many different modes so many different like tacks he can take in a conversation to get at what the actual like underlying thing is that you can see that if you never broke past the first or second layer you'd have no idea what's under there um and so i come out of the scene sort of having a sense of like this is how he functioned is that it was just like this you know it, you know a, 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 a matryoshka doll of a deceit uh that are that's sort of concealing uh you know who he is at at base and then of course we do have he he calls out the fact that he knows that will is appealing to his intellectual vanity the funny thing is part of the tragedy of of lecter is that he can't help but respond to it like yeah. he knows it's he his wants vulnerability it. mm-hmm. yeah it's absolutely his vulnerability and even knowing it he can't resist it um but Unbeknownst to us, he has more than a passing familiarity with this case. Um, and so when when he finally confronts Will with his real theory of why Will is there, uh, which Will's already confessed to us, which is that he's there to get the scent, to, to get back in like serial killer mode, we get a really effectively delivered line that reads extremely weird on the page. You want the scent, Will? Smell yourself. Um <laughs> which smell yourself is a weird it's a weird gotcha line it does hit its mark but it's extremely weird to see like brian cox is going smell yourself as will runs out of the most beautiful like penitentiary i've ever seen because it turns out to be a modern art museum yes such long shots of him like just lingering shot i couldn't tell you know it was easy to tell in the director's cut like some of the footage that like like it was lower quality and it kind of spliced in but i kept wondering oh is this part of the director's cut we're just gonna linger for a minute and a half on him just running down these stairs no because that's one of my favorite shots like this whole weird just like it's just like this is so unnecessary even to communicate (laughs) what it's trying to communicate and it's just like no so, it's that boat scene from the keep, you know, it's like it's about a minute too long longer than it probably should be. And it doesn't really need to be in the movie. But God bless it that it is. I just love that. Like. So this is this is a modern art museum, I think, in Atlanta that he's these pretending is a prison here. And I do love that. It's like, what if the panopticon but aesthetic? And mm-hmm. that that's kind of what we've got here. And I was like, I would be honored to be incarcerated for life. In now, look, Templar has taught us the Panopticon is aesthetic, Rob. <laughs> that's very true as well. Um, it's so he goes, he goes fleeing out of there. Um, and it's like pretty soon after this, that Hannibal pulls off his little coup, uh, using a prison phone to get in touch with, uh, I think it's Will's therapist, uh, who's also a published author. Is that kind of the thing? He's like, because he still exists. He still swims. He still speaks natively that language of like academic consultant. Right. Um, And so he pretends to be someone from another publishing house uh, trying to get, I think, like a galley to Will. And he sort of socially engineers uh, this faculty uh, night secretary to giving Will's home contact info. Um, and yeah, we do we do, do get a sense of how effortlessly uh, Cox can sort of slip into a different character. Um, we also meet at this point, and I couldn't believe this. I completely forgot that he's in this movie. Stephen Lang. Yes. As yeah. tabloid dirtbag Freddie Lowndes. 
uh, who writes who wrote the book uh, about Graham and Hannibal and their previous case. Uh, he is all over the fact that Will is now consulting on the Tooth Fairy case. And so they have the bright idea of using Lowndes to smoke out the Tooth Fairy. Um, but it is so strange seeing Stephen Lang this young and also remembering him as like, oh, yeah, he was not a terrifying old man. No, he had floppy new wave hair at one point. Yeah, it's extremely strange. Like, you can sort of see how like you can sort of see how that guy turns into General Pickett in Gettysburg. And then you can sort of like tenuously draw the connection between that character and like all his crazy old men that he's played in his later career stages. But it's so strange to see uh, Stephen Lowndes, uh, Freddie Lowndes in this role. Um, and we get a really half-baked plot. I love this. Uh, well, here's a question. Is it a half-baked plot? Mm. Like, they use, they plant a story with Lowndes where they basically just say for 1980s the most insulting shit they possibly can about the Tooth Fairy, which is that uh, he's probably a gay man who fucked his mom. And right. they that runs. And they're like, this will surely smoke him out and he will attack Will Graham. And it never occurs to them, it doesn't occur to the cops, that there's two people involved in that story and one of them might be a softer target. I'm curious, uh, because this comes up later, uh, Hannibal certainly alludes to it. Is it a surprise to Graham how all this shakes out? Do you think? Do you think this is a plot? Do you think this is a real plot to catch the Tooth Fairy, or do you think there's a bit of like subconscious wish fulfillment in painting a target on loans? I mean, I, I think, think you can achieve both. Yeah, yeah. I like for me, it's. I think on some level he's agreeing to this plot because he can't think of anything else at the moment. You know, like you, you mm-hmm. know, he's still kind of at this stage where he's not a hundred percent of the way. You know, to his he is not charged to full power. He is not super Saiyan fucking, uh, you know, Colonel Profiler yet. So he kind of goes with this because it feels like the easy hook. Like it's a way he, he knows that the the killer will read the tattler. He knows that this will this will get in front of him in some way. And he has obviously no real feelings for this person other than kind of, you know, uh, animus. So it's like, fuck it. Let's try it. Let's see what happens. But, you know, I think deep down he knows this is probably not the way that he's going to end up catching him. But, like, for lack of a better plan and also for, you know, them being on a timetable until the next full moon, he's got to try something. So why not throw this motherfucker in front of the in front of the gun, right? Yeah, it's it's a spectacularly bad plan. Uh, it's not but good. It is, it is kind of the only one they're left with after... Um, we did get a great sequence of uh, the at the the surprisingly effective staff of the uh, penitentiary where where uh, Lecter is being kept. They find a note that appears to be from the Tooth Fairy that he that he somehow got to Lecter, um, and we get a great sequence of like them really rapidly using all the tools of the federal government. Uh, to try and analyze this thing without Lecter ever realizing uh, that it, that it's been found, and they come up short. But we we get a great sequence of um, you know various technicians and specialists pouring over stuff, people at work being hyper competent, uh, just you know good man shit. Uh, we we get the line "You're so sly, but so am I." Uh, okay, but <laughs> that line. There's, there's a lot of lines from the book that get lifted directly. 
And that one is in like every adaptation. Hmm. And I don't know why, because it's fucking awful. I hate it. Like every well, time, like in the book, it doesn't even work. Did you hear in the commentary, man talking about this? No, like, I, I everyone on the... tapped out on man before I could get to that scene. He was like, <laughs> I don't know why this happened. Sometimes shit's just like an earworm. But everyone on the crew would not stop saying that. And he also sounds like he doesn't know why. And he didn't think the line was that good. But what? everybody like because from we don't include the best line in the book. Which is, do you want to pet a tiger? Hell, fuzzy, yes. What? what? Wait, that's a real line in the book? Yeah. Hell, she, fuzzy, so yes? So she says, she yeah. says that in response? Because tigers are fuzzy, yeah. <sighs> wow, then, Red Dragon anticipated our entire generation. <laughs> Tragic. Oh, boy. Wow. I feel like my brain just broke. <laughs> Mine too. Red Dragon can has cheeseburger. Uh, uh, red, red, red dragon wants to see that doggo. Uh, heckin' yeah, yeah, heckin' puffers, <laughs> heckin' tigers. Yep. Oh my god. Well, now I understand how that other line made it into the script. But um, it is an earworm. It is. I've said it to myself at least twice since I watched the movie. <laughs> the, so because they they also realized that um. Lecter has sent a counter message to the Tooth Fairy through Lowndes paper, and this is why they end up doing that plot. But they can't crack the code. Uh, they don't have time, and they sort of have to make a call, do they let this message go out or not? And so their attempt uh, to sort of get ahead of this is to bring Lowndes in on this plot. And we get Will Graham uh, planning to capture the Tooth Fairy in this sting. I think also we have a, a great scene between uh, him and his wife where... Molly comes up at Farina's uh, invitation to sort of spend a little time with with Will. Um, and you notice see Will's not comfortable with it. He's already in that mo- the process of being alienated uh, from his family in a way that, like, uh, you know, Farina's Crawford, even as his friend, doesn't fully get. But that process is already underway. Um but again, we get a good scene where Molly is kind of refusing to be boxed in. And she sort of, uh, I don't know, the, the sequence is almost like shot a bit like wedding vows in, in some ways. They're sort of together uh, before the altar that is the backdrop of, of Washington uh, in the frame. But she she gives the, uh, you know, time is luck uh, speech that, that, you know, that... Will's very much a character driven by trying to keep everyone safe and keep things stable. And Molly is a character who fundamentally understands and accepts that things are not. And she can live with that uncertainty. And she can live with the strain of uh, being in this relationship that is so extremely uncertain and dangerous in places. And it is a moment where you realize that, like, I don't think Will gives Molly enough credit like, I think part of, like, the reason he's so alienated from his family is he doesn't think... He thinks people can't handle uh, a lot of what he carries. And I think if there's a thing that works in this film, it's that he kind of starts to save his family and his connection to them. Kind of has to start realizing that they can. So I, I kind of... Like, that scene works for me. Um, also, we get some great 80s man soundtrack. Uh, just perfect electronic music. Uh, just with a slightly less absurd sex scene than the keep (laughs) slightly less slightly less it's not 
not terrible. No. Uh, I think the thing that doesn't work is the scene ends so abruptly and he's just like cuts the music to launch into the scene where uh, where Will is being the bait. He's the sort of lamb staked out uh, trying to bait the tooth fairy out and uh, naturally goes horribly wrong. They end up attacking a jogger, basically. Um, Meanwhile, his, his fairy, football, his football takedown. Yes. was fun to watch, though. <laughs> I can't. I kept waiting. I was like, "What's he gonna do? Like, what's the like? Like, as I as it became clear that he, he was gonna have to enact some sort of tackle, and it was d- just delightful to watch the, the one that he chose to to, to 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 put on the poor guy." Well, I do enjoy like the the guy. Genuinely, we get we spend a moment with his bewilderment as to what the fuck just happened, uh, because yeah, he thinks he's being mugged, and then SWAT troopers are all around him, and then Will's like, "Ah, oh, shit," and leaving, and he's looking at the cops and asks, "Why are you all moving in slow motion?" I, yeah, I just mugged. got mugged. <laughs> That's a, that was a good bit. Um, meanwhile, the actual victim uh, becomes apparent here. Uh, Lounge is. I guess it's the mid 80s. Maybe the creepy serial killer van is not yet a trope, but I feel like if I saw that van parked next to my little sports car, I would I would not. If I just written a story mm. about a serial killer uh, like that and I'm lounge, I would not like go near that van. But he does. Um, he goes next to the big gray uh, conversion van, blacked out windows, uh, is promptly abducted. And we finally meet the tooth fairy. Or the Red Dragon. Uh, yeah, we've seen a million different scenes where serial killers introduce themselves. How does this one land for you? This is probably one of my favorite, like, just sequences in... It's, I mean, like, you know, this came after RoboCop for me. So, like, you know, seeing Tom Noonan, like, how, like, the evolution of Tom Noonan from, like, you know, through Kane to this. And it's just like, yeah. Like, you've always just been good at being a creepy motherfucker. And, you know, Ray Fiennes holds his own. Um, the, 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 whoever they get for Hannibal, eh. but, but Tom Noonan is just, Tom Noonan is aware of how fucking weird his body motion, his, 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 his posture and like his height and everything about him, Tom Noonan understands and uses like just a hundred percent. Fully at all times. Uh, it's great. Like, and then the set dressing for like this reveal with the t- giant like Mars print on the wall. Well, it's the moon, what? but it's false. Yeah, color. it's the lunar oh, it's moon. That's right. That's right. Yeah. The- yeah. Like the, the interior decoration of this place is spectacular. It is a complete mishmash of like weirdly stylish furniture and also just like stuff that looks like it hasn't been touched since 1962. Uh, it is, it is a, it is at once a, a really visually interesting, but also very off putting space. And I appreciate that while that first shot you get of Noonan is certainly like, Oh Jesus Christ, what are we dealing with here? He's not going super over the top with it. No, like he doesn't need to. No, and like Tom Noonan is not a super over the top actor, but like, you know, he's got the the stocking halfway over his head. He's holding the one hand up in a way that is sort of un- you can't really tell what that gesture even is, but it's unpleasant. And well, the way Jesus he's pose, right? Like that's kind of an iconic like uh like portrayal of Christ. 
distinctly possible. I, I, I yeah. would, I'm not sure if that's exactly what they're going for, but that if it is, you know, either way, it's it's unsettling. But the thing I appreciate about Noonan here in this scene, uh, especially compared to the way it's done in Red Dragon, like you said, Ray Fiennes holds his own. He is, he is certainly a creepy character in that movie. But in that version of this scene, he is in full melodrama mode. Like he is delivering that you are an ant in the afterbirth line, like with just so much <laughs> stagey yeah. intensity. And it's it's fun. But here you his like Noonan's version of Dollarhide is not melodramatic. He is not over the top. He is not preening for, you know, an audience other than, you know, the the, the people he has killed. He's awkward. He's like he's trying to exude confidence, but his his personality is not that. And when he tries, it comes off like he is posturing, like he is trying to show himself to be more powerful than he is. And like I like the way he sort of like pushes through those lines in a way like he's he's angry, but he's like kind of fumbling through them. And like, I don't know, like to me, it's just it's more effectively creepy because he's not you know, standing there naked with a giant back tattoo screaming about how, you know, the great becoming or whatever. He's a guy who seems just kind of on edge and unsettled and very unhappy. And like, he's going to do something that you can't predict. Even I had to think like about, oh, yeah, go, ahead. go for it. Yeah. Oh, I was just thinking about like, you know, the, the, the set dressing for um, Francis's house is so in opposition to everything else we've seen so far too. Like even, you know, even like, uh, Hannibal's cell. It is stark. It is pristine. It is white. It is all white. And like all of like Will Graham's house is all white. And then we get like, you know, the very neutral hotel rooms. And then we have the kind of more neutral office spaces. But then we get like that, like putting the camera on the floor of like Tom Noonan or you know, of Francis's home. And it's like, it's not a Dutch angle, but it might as well be. It's mm-hmm. so the way the furniture is arranged, the triangles of it are so off and like jammed together. You know, like, like I pulled it up to take a look at it, and there's like there's like 17 different lines going on in this one scene. It is the most chaotic and fractured, just single shot setup like I have seen in like a long time in movies. Um, I think. I think man said on the commentary specifically that was the goal was like just put as many acute angles into it his is. living like, space as they could. Like, like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Like there's like nine different triangles in the sun shot. And it's just like, God, this is like unnerving just looking at it. <laughs> it's still. Um, well, I think he also mentions that he and Spinati wanted to create a lot of clashing color combinations that don't necessarily, it's not that they look bad in contrast against each other, but they don't go. Uh, like they you, don't occur naturally you do very not often. See. No, yeah. and they're and all so kind of wants, sickly like, versions of like colors found elsewhere in the movie too. Like there's green here, which we kind of have been associating with Will Graham and doing work. Um, and it's like, but like it's it's off. It's very kind of putrid green. And then there's like the muted red. That's kind of like you know the blood that you spit out when you've had like you know oral surgery, kind of you know in the poster. And then like this ugly brown chair and the wood of the floor is not really a good brown. And um, yeah, it's just it's yeah. it's just a really just like kind of repulsive feeling shot done so well. <laughs> And even the uh, the fact that he's only wearing the stocking 
halfway down his face. Yeah. The entire thing, like, he looks uncomfortable. Like, it feels thrown together. But also, it's weird. Like, why wouldn't you pull, why would you have that thing, like, tugging against your, like, the your upper lip or the, the the base of your nose. I don't get it. It's so fucking strange. Um and yeah, like I think his sort of flat delivery, the your slug, uh, you know, quivering before the sun uh thing, on the one hand is very matter of fact, like on on some level he kind of believes this, but also he is trying to he's a deeply insecure character and he is mm-hmm. trying to present uh you know a strength he does not feel, which if we have if we don't pick that up the movie will make sure we do uh, a bit a bit later. Um, and I do, you, you do get a sense for, you know, Lowndes is a piece of shit, but the, the, the degree to which he is aware of just like his desperation to live here. Uh, and that brief moment we spend with him after he uh, I think it's after the tooth fairy leaves to go get the like message he's going to read and Lowndes observes to himself. If he takes that mask off, I'm dead still thinking that there's a version of this where he gets out. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's kind of pathetic and his ending is pathetic, but also spectacular because after God, after we cut away, I think we get maybe my favorite shot in the film, or at least my favorite example of lighting, which is we cut to, um, a guy listening, a, a parking lot uh, attendant listening to a broadcast and hearing some weird noises from up the ramp. And then, like dawn breaking at the top of the ramp, you see this glow start up. And it's just incredible, the 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 wash of orange and red across that, across that uh, ramp. And then the um, attendant's, like, eyes widen, and we get the view of the spectacular burning lounge rocketing toward you just a stunning rate of speed uh on a wheelchair uh just lit a fire uh headlong into the camera i don't know that that knocks my so- socks off every time uh patrick you're probably you're probably more inured to shocker uh shots but like <laughs> mm-hmm. does this did, did this moment get you no, it does because because the speed of it, right? Like it's the cutaway. Like a frequent, you know, it, it wouldn't be. It's very easy to imagine that shot just being a long, like you you cut to in front of like the attendant, and you're just like seeing it build, and the, like the music swells, and like it comes up behind. But I think the reason like this works because you don't have time to even take in what occurred. Like it, it is just like a flash over. It, it's I mean it's a literal jump scare, right? Like it's it's it, it you know it, it has something that just pops in your face, and you need a time to look at the prosthetics, the makeup. Like what, what did they do to even dress up? Like what am I looking at? Like you have no time to take in any detail other than to just immediately mentally process a man is on fire and the attendant acts as the, you know, for, for the audience. And yeah, I think it's, it's, it's really fucking good. It's, um, it's so quick and it's so intense. It literally just leaves like a little bloody smear on the lens at the end. And then it's just like, okay, now we're in the hospital. Like that's it. That's you, all you, you get no, to take in. You, you all, like, there is no like time for the audience to process it, to like sit with it. It is just, well, that's the thing that happened. And then we're going to move on to, uh, you know, uh, Will Graham asking if he was able to like if they were able to get anything out of, you know, him before before he died. And I think that's part of the effectiveness of the scene is is like it, it, it doesn't sit with it. It just moves on to the next thing and like leaves you unsettled as we go back to the procedural part of the, you know, the back half of the film. I think the other thing that's it's interesting to kind of 
before that is, did you notice how Freddie Lowndes is blindfolded? Because it's not a blindfold. It's a maxi pad. <laughs> no, I did not notice what? that. Yeah. Because hmm. he just kind of rips it off and it's just, it's, it's just a maxi pad. I wondered pad. about the tape. The tape registered, but the rest of it didn't. Yeah. Huh. And it's just like, it's, it's, I don't remember if it was in the, the book or not. I don't remember that detail, but, um, yeah, it's just a weird thing that like always, like I notice. I'm just like, wait, that's a maxi pad that he's just put over Freddie Lowndes' eyes. Well, you know, a good prop master also, okay. uh, just to find <laughs> solutions. Sarah just uh, nodded to me. It is in the book. Okay. They remember it better. So yeah. But like, yeah. again, a weird detail to keep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, but the thing is, like, man in the commentary is like, he wanted to check all the boxes of like, hey, I've done my research on psychosexual serial killers. And so it wouldn't surprise <laughs> me, like, if he's like, you know, I heard a lot of them uh, keep shit like maxi pads around the house. And uh, so I just wanted a little detail. <laughs> read, one art, read one academic piece and was like, I understand them now. Well, he's like, but no, he, he goes in the commentary. He talks a lot about like how he used to correspond with a serial killer and i think like might have done a little bit of documentary work around one uh in like california's major like uh criminal psychiatric uh facility uh but there's there's a lot of like michael mann to no one's surprise sounds very much like the dude in Mindhunter, like who just loved <laughs> hanging out with serial killers uh the, the main character who's like mm-hmm. i just want to i just want to rap with this guy uh that's that's michael mann um well, they're just dudes doing work, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Michael Mann Such wants to know your profession, whatever it is. That's, he's like he's like Studs Terkel if Studs Terkel made like action movies, right? Like just, <laughs> just Michael Mann's working, but it's all like con men, cops, assassins. Um so the thing is, so with this plot blowing up in their face, something else happens, which is they realize they finally decode what was in Lecter's message. It was Will's home address. And poor Molly, we cut to, uh, I don't know, for me, like my heart was genuinely in my mouth because like everything was going so bad that when I saw this the first time, I was like, well, this is just going to continue to get worse because we cut to Molly being awakened by her son and him being like, there's someone here. And it's the dead of night. We're back in the blue house. Um, with the exception, the one the one break in the blue is uh, the saltwater aquarium. Uh, Dia, how do you rate that aquarium? It's okay. Yeah? You, you aim mean, a little you know, higher for your own uh, little reef you're going to build? I mean, I got to say, like, on the uh, r slash aquarium uh, subreddit, and just, like, motherfuckers put in some work. Um Michael Mann do a movie about you know professional aquarists uh, because I think he's got a lot of procedural shots he can do there. Uh, so also like these are the least reassuring cops. Again, movie doesn't <laughs> gen- probably doesn't think much of cops. Doesn't think they're very very good at anything. The sound her son heard turns out to be this big gormless cop. Just looming on her porch, she opens the in. door and he's just there. Let me in, ma'am. You should come back inside, please. Please just come back inside. No, nobody could like get on the phone. Like no heads up. Like a swarm of cops are are, are coming. I mean, utterly bizarre. I mean, I think you're right, Rob. Like this movie, I don't I don't know how anti cop it is, but it is certainly pulls no punches on showing them as being like bumbling 
and inept. And maybe that's like to create a greater distance between Graham and themselves in which like, well, none of this can happen without like our savant here to, you know, like solve, solve the case. But like uh, at every turn, they are, they are portrayed as like, just like barely capable of showing up to do, to do their jobs. This is, I have no, nothing to base this on, but I do think like man becomes more pro cop as his career goes along, or at least he makes more movies about like cops doing awesome shit uh, as, which kind of have career. to be sympathetic by nature if you're going to like tell like look how cool well and this I also, cool shit and I also wonder if part of it is you know when he's making thief he's actually working more closely with like the thieves right as mm-hmm. he's like and the cops he meets are kind of nakedly corrupt and they're Chicago cops of very old school who are like yeah I was on the take I sure did beat the shit out of people routinely and so like he get he gets a pretty like jaundiced view of cops and thief that I think comes through and here he's working with some profilers but like he still doesn't think the cops are necessarily going to be the particularly competent uh, at this by the time I think you get to heat my suspicion is he's starting to like as part of his research he's getting so deep down the rabbit hole of like talking to robbery homicide cops and such that like he is starting to just take on more of their self presentation uh, and it's coming through in his films. Though I will note, in all his movies, the cops mostly fail miserably. Like Al Pacino's robbery, homicide, cop, and thief uh, in in Heat. Like fifty people died in that gunfight. Basically, <laughs> like oh, yeah. he he causes the, the which is to say nothing shootout. of Pacino's personal life in that movie, which is also in shambles. But right, and in Miami Vice, like. The cops botch the the cops after one of them gets kidnapped in Miami Vice. They will stage a daring rescue and then hang out in like the meth trailer park waiting for it to blow up so that the person they just rescued can be like killed anyway. Like so even there, like generally the, the police, the actual win loss record for the cops in man movies is, is pretty bad. But uh, but here, like they do just kind of seem kind of bumbling. Uh, and so this is who rescue rescues uh, Graham's family. And we get sort of two back-to-back domestic sequences here. First starring Graham, as he realizes or he intuits uh, after the family's been moved to this uh, safe house. It's a good detail. They, he and Molly are trying to have a private conversation. They like tell, tell their son like, Hey, go play outside. And he says, no, I'm good here. And then makes a point of telling his mom, I'll just be in the kitchen. And Graham immediately picks up on like, hey, is is my kid scared of me? Is he scared to leave you alone with me? Um, And he realizes that both because of the way he's been acting, but also some of the stories that have been in the newspaper about Graham and particularly uh, the fact that he was like in a uh, like treatment ward. Uh, for PTSD following his encounter with Lecter. Um, his his son is now sort of afraid of him and thinks like, you know, his dad might also be uh, in, insane because this is the, the discourse of the moment. And so he takes him to, they, they go shopping together to have a heart to heart. And again, like, mo- it seems like this don't exist in a lot of man, mo- man movies from here. But we get like Will Graham being a pretty good dad and like unpacking for a kid what happened. And I think what's 
there's partly the explaining what a serial killer does, which I think, again, like kids of the 90s would just know instinctively. Like, yeah, I know. What type of serial killer was Lecter dad? Uh, that's what I want to know. Um, but I think he, he's also doing a bit of trying to unpack for kid what it is that, that Will sees himself doing and why it's hard. Um, I don't know. The scene, the scene works for me. Uh, I, I'm curious what, what y'all think of this, like the little domestic interlude with, with the, uh, with the Graham family. I mean, I this gen- is dope. Go ahead. I would say I genuinely enjoy the, the way that the sh- way this whole bit is shot, which is them kind of wandering down the cereal aisle and everything is like neatly stocked to such a degree that it borders on obsessive compulsive. And, you know, I don't know. There's just like a nice juxtaposition there between, you know, Graham sort of like trying to order the things that go on in his mind in a way that he can present to his kid without scaring the absolute shit out of him with all these just kind of like neatly stacked boxes all around him. Like it's just kind of a nice shot. Yeah, this is this is as close as Michael Mann can get to Spielberg's dinner table scene in Jaws. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And like, I think, I think it, I think he makes it work for him. Like, you know, man will never be the sentimentalist is capable of the, the dinner table scene. It's not going to happen, but he still needs to have the father connecting with his son and like dealing with the, you know, grappling with like these bigger emotions of the outside world is chaotic and dangerous. And it's like, okay, we're going shopping and, you know, my kid's going to pick up the coffee that I want. And like, I'm going to talk to him about what daddy does. Like, it works. And we and we get a sense of like the fact that Will feels he can't rid himself of these thoughts that like getting in a serial killer's head, he starts seeing the world like them. You realize that he didn't really crack the Lecter case so much as he made an intuitive leap and understood ex- like in a in a flash of insight. Like seeing a single book on Lecter shelves as he was sort of consulting with him and realizing like this is the guy. This is him. Um, and Lecter immediately realizing that and attacking him. Uh, the fact that like there was no, there was there was no Sherlock Holmesian solution where we logicked it out. It was just a, this was a guy who liked looking at photos of battle wounds. He liked seeing bodies destroyed, and this is the guy. Um, and then we cut to the Tooth Fairy, and we're gonna meet Francis Dollarhide here, and. Uh, so there's a lot of things happening here. Uh, and, and Dia, I'm curious because, like, I think it took me a while to realize, like, fully what the solution is here and 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 where this guy sits. Like, he works at a film lab. But but I'm curious, like, what are what are we seeing here? Uh, because th- we've been seeing all these home movies of the families throughout all this. And I forget, like, when home movie VHS took over. But it feels like the the critical thing here is that in this era, families who shoot home movies are shooting film. Um, and Dollarhide is a film technician, uh, but he seems like reasonably high up. Like, he, he seems like a very skilled technician, like the guy who gets called in to solve problems and is kind of a very important to engineer at this facility. But I'm, I'm curious, like how this part plays for you uh how how accurately is it capturing the logistics of uh like home film production of the era well so he works at um a film processing uh i guess they're a lab but they're like kind of they're they're bigger than like they're not just like you know 
uh, you're, you're even like a kind of a Kodak processing lab. They're, they're a firm that specializes in, you know, even like highly technical stuff, but then all the way down to family film, um, which is, you know, it's an expensive thing at this time. Like, uh, these are wealthy families that are being targeted because um, they're the ones who can afford to not only have the luxury of just kind of shooting these random weird <laughs> movies, but also um, get, then getting them processed like, you know, in, in a lab. Uh, this is a time when, you know, like slide film was still popular. You were sending film out uh, and it was not, you know, one hour photo. It was come back in a week. You're going to get, you know. Uh, so I think it's pretty accurate. Um, the kind of, uh, firm that like they're talking about, um, uh, yeah, like it, it, this, this is, this is what it is. This is the job. And he's a, like what a production chief. Um, so he's kind of, you know, got a decent amount of responsibility in terms of processing all of these, this, this footage. And that's what puts him in contact with, you know, all of these videos. And, while he's there, he meets uh, Joan Allen's character, Reba, um, who we meet as a uh, blind woman who is a also a film technician. And he is he meets her because he's asking questions about uh, particular film stock that he's going to be using for night shooting. Uh, and the thing he's going to be shooting, we know, is he's going to be taking pictures of like his killing spree. Um, he says, you know, what do you going to be shooting? He's like nocturnal animals uh, in a darkly funny um, exchange. And so she she sort of gives him advice for like how he's going to have to use this film uh, and what he's going to be careful of. And when he realizes uh, she's she's blind, um, he's both kind of fascinated by the contradiction of of her working at a film processing lab. Uh, but also this is he what he sees is his chance to have a relationship where somebody can't see his uh, marked face. He has a um, cleft palate uh, re- like reconstruction. Um, it is clear that he is very self-conscious about his form, even though he's an awkward looking dude, but like pretty normal looking like honestly the thing that's most awkward about him is the way he sort of like lurches uh mm-hmm. through the frame but like there's definitely this sense of this is my opportunity to have relationship uh with someone who can't see my my horrible form um and then i guess this is where i miss out on the hell fuzzy yes uh <laughs> because she is she needs to get a ride home oh quick detail here i, I do enjoy she says she's she was hired there because the firm was forced to hire a bunch of people uh to hit diversity and uh like disability requirements in order to get a government contract and he observes well you know you seem good at your job and she just sort of notes that everyone they hired in that wave worked out um interesting tossed off detail but i think also like you get little glimpses into i think occasionally like man's value system, which is that like, I don't think the, the fever pitch over like affirmative action and diversity requirements had, had hit in the eighties, but it's stirring. And this film kind of just acknowledges that the people who got chances in this wave of like hirings that this firm cynically was doing just to get government money. Um, they all turned out to be like good, like good at their jobs and like a benefit to the firm, uh, which, which I kind of dig. And so he asks her out, um, and she 
overlooking a ton of red flags is like, sure. Like, even though you seem really, she does pick up, he's tightly wound, but you know, she, she can roll with that. Uh, and so he takes, <laughs> takes her to the vet. Uh, I don't know. Like the biggest question I have about dollar hide is how does he have a hookup where just the drop of a dime, he can go take someone to pet a tiger. It's a good question. And I don't, remember so i obviously haven't read the book and i don't remember if red dragon the movie actually addressed how he knew this person i mean you can infer i guess that you know even in his uh sort of isolative proclivities like maybe he would still have a friend or two or at least an acquaintance or two that he had run across over the years but do i do i understand how he just had a guy who has a sedated tiger on speed dial no i don't i, I don't think the movie quite communicates that no, it it really doesn't in the movie, and I did Red Dragon doesn't either. I don't remember. I remember the line more than I remember that part of the book. I don't remember what his deal is there. Um, well, it's a power move; like it closes the deal. Oh yeah, um, and it's a striking scene too. Oh, it's incredible. Um, the the way she like pets the tiger and hears his heartbeat, and he's sort of watching. It's a it's a, it's a great sequence, and then she agrees to go home with him, um, and we sort of get a funny sequence as he he's watching. So she can't see what he's running on the film projector, which is his kills, his kill reel, right? Like yeah. it is the films, the families and photos. His homework, he, please. Yes. <laughs> so she can't see that. And so she doesn't know that he's looking from that to her and like just ogling her. And, the funny thing is midway through that scene, she jumps him and uh, like takes him to bed and we get a great. What's the what's the what's the song that plays during this tale? Um, oh, it's that. Is it that shriek back song design? Yeah. 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 So that entire thing plays out and we get this sequence uh, that apparently they reshot. Spinati in his commentary is still still pissed about this. Apparently, like the first time in the scene where uh, he's lying in bed next to her after they have sex, uh, the light was perfect. They had this like amazing like dawn light filtering through the room uh, because this is lo- location shoot. They actually built this home out in uh, like this this part. I think of it was North Carolina. Yeah. yeah. Um, which uh, like love love doing things practically and not and doing things on locations uh it's cool but spinati was like we had this amazing light one problem is that at that point they still thought they were gonna do the whole red dragon like chest tattoo Mm -hmm. and i think wisely they all decided it might be a bit muchy much to have noonan just covered in this in this chest tattoo so they they remove it and they reshoot the scene, but the lighting, Spinati argues, is, is not as good. I think it's still an effective scene as uh, she's asleep next to him. He has not let her touch his face. Uh, she, he's not let her see him. And it's while she's asleep that he puts her hand over his face uh, and over his scar and bursts into tears. Um, and so, yeah, we... we I, I think it sort of circles on a thing where um, man's argument is that Graham's ability is to really empathize with serial killers and like feel for them, feel like feel the feel the tragedy there. And I think there's there's an element of that in the sequence that there's a bit of like 
uh, sympathy for for the devil. I don't think the scene pulls off. I think man wants us to get a lot more of like what the actual pathology is than we actually get here. Mostly what I, what I pick up from the sequence is like you can sort of and I, I think he sort of glimpses this too. You can sort of see like maybe what his life could have been working not this like irrevocably broken. Um, but I still don't think I get a lot of sense of what makes him tick, like what made him this way. I don't, I don't think we need to. I was going to say I was going to say I'm, I'm, I'm like much more satisfied with mm-hmm. this being a glimpse into the why than it being. What is it? Like, I think, you know, you all watch various parts of the commentary, but like, isn't there a point where I think we, you mentioned this in the pre-show that man says something like, well, you know, like all child trauma just kind of breaks people and like informs like how they function in the future. And like you see, like you could see man himself could like fall into like there, there are different ways this could have gone. And I this just being like, yeah, like as you said, right, like a, a person, a broken person whether through you know combination of their fault external factors psychological bio who knows but like it's a broken person that like glimpses a different version of themselves and is sad and then we immediately you know after that then revert back to to the mean that's like a far more interesting read on a villain than like let's spend an extra 40 minutes like in their brain understanding like what happened like a flashback like we pan over to a can like, you know, a, a photo of them from their childhood. And then we get a flashback explaining how their parents were abusive or something. Like, even if that is like some source of their trauma, I think this is like a much more it leaves more to the imagination and like paints with a broader brush that I think actually works for the story that's being told here. Well, then then don't watch Red Dragon. I'll tell you yeah. right now, because they just <laughs> well, straight up well, do, that, they just straight up I mean. do some Norman Bates's mother. Shit. But that's what this all that's where that's where all of this goes. Right. Like that's yeah. that's that like this media in general, it, this genre is obsessed with, um, you know, and, and you, you see logical conclusion of this in the in our, you know, in our current culture, are like obsessed with like true crime narratives, podcasts and like b- breaking down like the whys, the details like that is just in, in many ways endemic to the appeal of this genre and like i i like the restraint here because it makes the villain the character more interesting as a result like sometimes yes you can have a sort of like a fully fleshed out character in which their motivations are are interesting to like the plot but i I guess because we see that so often and then it becomes a caricature and a trope here like it it feels like a it feels more like a character um um and how you land on like why they do what they do or do or what they don't do, you know, it, you, there's more room for interpretation and empathy, I think, w- as a result, because you don't because, you know, less. Yeah, I don't think the movie would be benefit from man like having character pontificate on like Erasmus uh, syndrome or or something like that, where like, uh, well, this is what made this guy. And I think the important thing here is as much as you can have sympathy with the guy, it's very clear. He's not one good day away from no. changing his evil ways, right? Like, he's, he's not like, oh, if only people had shown him kindness. We see what happens when people show him kindness. We see how everything is sort of transmogrified. Which is actually, uh, like, yeah, the brilliant part about this, that little arc, like, is, is like, oh, it's an acknowledgement of of that idea. They're like, oh, if we were just nicer to, to, to this person, they'd be better. And it's like, well, no, there was, like, a, a completely pure person who like treated them, respected them, like looked at them fully as a person, knows nothing of their baggage, and yet is still completely, you know, caught up in in his own bullshit. And like, so I, I think like it actually pretty neatly addresses like that like common response to to to, to, to stories and characters like this. 
Well, and to skip ahead, uh, you know, the the next time that Dollarhide interacts with her, he is going to he shows up early for a date at her home and sees her being driven home by a coworker, the same guy who we know like the reason he met her is because this guy couldn't drive her home the previous night. This is a routine thing. But Dollarhide immediately sees it as she's cheating on him. Uh that mm-hmm. she must be with this this other guy who, to be fair, he drives a pretty cool Corvette. I'd fuck him. <laughs> but um like he's he's sitting there in his van convinced that like, they're having this passionate affair. And when we get his point of view uh, it's a great shot. Like they're all lit, lit, lit to shit, like glowing in the frame as they like embrace. But it's not happening. It's just how he sees it. Um, and you sort of realize like he's making a lot out of nothing, and it justifies what he's going to do next, which is he's also now putting her in the frame of his serial killer vision. Uh, that he is seeing her the same way he sees all his victims, and it's kind of like detouring. From this whole movie, he's been winding up to kill another family. And he's like, nah, I found my next victim right here. Uh, and it's this this woman who did look at him with like love and kindness and acceptance. Doesn't matter. Here the next night, the wheels are already turning. And he sees he's now justifying the recreation of uh, his fantasy with her. Um, and just goes buck wild and kills this dude like in her front lawn uh, and then kidnaps her, which I think is also kind of funny because the whole thing is like, we need Will Graham to crack this case. Dollar hide is done at this point. Like if Will Graham was not involved at all, he'd have flamed out when he killed these two people he worked with. Like the cops would not have needed, would not have needed Will Graham to crack the case of like why two people who worked at this film lab were dead. Yeah, yeah. Even, um, even the guy who like burst into uh to the house like get inside, get inside. He he could have done something with this body and put two and two together. Hey Probably. Francis, uh, you got any thoughts on like what could happen to could happen to them? <laughs> no, none. Like he like Dollarhide is Dollarhide's cooked, uh, but. So he's off. He's off winding up to do this uh, serial killer shit uh, in the comfort of his own home now. And we get Will Graham finally like keying into uh, the right frequency to to sort of figure out what's going on here. And it starts with um, Lecter calling him on the fact that, in Lecter's view, Will Graham is also. A a killer that he does this because it, it, it gratifies his need to kill. Yeah. Um, it just so happens he's found a socially acceptable way to do it, uh, which is that he profiles serial killers and hunts them down and kills them. This is why I actually don't hate the title. Like everyone drags the title, but I think it does keep the focus on like the story is about Will Graham, who in the question is to what degree does he do this because of duty and to what degree is it because of like predilection? And Lecter is arguing that, like, Will Graham enjoys the process of hunting down people. Um, And that's serial killer shit. I think it's kind of a specious analogy. Like, I don't think it's I I, I don't think it really holds water, but it's certainly uh, Lecter's argument in this in this final phone call uh, that that they have. I don't know. What do you you make of the like? It's a classic. We're not so different. You and I moment. I'm curious how it landed for you. It, it 
I just real quick before we get into that, I just want to say that the the lead up right before this, uh, which is the part after uh, Graham finally, you know, sort of fully commits and leaves his family in safety. There's that little airport scene where he's staring out the window and you get what is somehow the poster tagline. It's just you and me now, sport, which is uh, one of the all time. <laughs> I great too line have reads. enjoyed Gatsby. Yeah, God. Uh, but then, yeah, so. I, this scene works for me, one, because Cox and, and Peterson, I think, play it very well. But two, I love the staging of it, which is like two teen girls sort of chatting with each other, you know, uh, on an idle Thursday night, making their weekend plans like fucking Lecter just splayed out with his you know, his socked feet leaned up against the wall. Like Graham just kind of splayed out in that that hotel chair with the phone kind of dangling off his shoulder. It's so casual. And I love that they because he has gotten to this point where he, you know, has sort of like achieved full power. You know, he feels like he can just kind of sit there and casually shoot the shit with Lecter and sit there and listen to Lecter basically say, you're just like me and him just kind of go, all right. Yeah. But how is that going to help me? How is that going to get me here? And then, you know, as they kind of talk through it, they do eventually get there. And he does kind of hit that epiphany and he does sort of hit that moment of like. Oh, fuck, I think I know how I'm going to catch him. And it's like just that that back like, you know, look, Michael Mann does people talking back and forth very well. That is his that is sort of his forte. And I think this is actually one of his better examples of it. He will make an entire movie about conversations like this with the insider. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, no, I agree. And it's very funny, by the way, in the commentary, he says that like the 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 sequence of shots and framing is lifted from Doris Day and Rock Hudson's uh, pillow talk. Um, which once he says it, it's like, oh shit, it is. Um, which is very funny. That's what he's drawing from. Um, and yeah, so once he's got this, now he's fully locked in, and now he begins seeing the, the scene now fully empathetically. Like he is now reliving it from the serial killer's point of view and starts unlocking the pieces of the puzzle. Um, so when he goes back and revisits the crime scene, we get, um, sort of the unsettling like dolly zoom effect that uh man is using to sort of uh give Graham the sense of like floating in a foreshortened frame um and that's sort of his his serial killer cam i guess you'd call <laughs> it um i don't know like it i mean that's what it, dissociation feels like is it, I mean, do you think it's a, a, a effective? Do you think it's corny? Because I feel like we see it so often, but maybe it was more novel then. I mean, that's the thing is we we see it so often because you know it it, it initially at least works, you know? yeah. Um, and like I mean, it, but yeah, like um, it, kind of, that's what dissociation feels like a lot of time. <laughs> um, so like I think it, I think it's it it works. It's effective. It's it's interesting because um. Like, if I remember correctly, he's not exactly centered in the frame in that scene. No. Like, it's it's just off center enough. He's cropped weird, too. If yeah, it sure. is cropped weird. Yeah, th- I'm looking at it now. And it's just like, you know, it's the only kind of thing on the wall behind him. There's a little bit of the, like the flowers over his shoulder. And then there's like the door that he came in. And it's just he's kind of pushed to the side. And it's like, it's just such a weird shot that, um, I don't know, I think it. Where it works a lot, <laughs> especially intercut with the weirdness of the like rotoscoped 
Mrs. Leeds lying in bed with like, you know, her eyes and mouth, like with the, the, the glass cut. Yes. But Jesus. It's just kind of, you know, glowing white. Uh, yeah, I forget that touch that. Yes. Now he sees her as a living as she was as the serial killer would have seen her uh, in her last moments, which is desiring of him and with her mouth and eyes uh, silvered. Um, and it's not enough. He and Farina have a meeting in Chicago where Farina is based <laughs> um, because God forbid we get through this movie without having a Chicago sequence. Of course. Um, like. like but I just, that's just one of those things. It's just like uh, this, this, the fight between the two of them. Um, or wait, is that the scene or is that on the later one? No, they have a big argument here. They have yeah, a big yeah, argument. Yeah, this is scene. one. Yeah, it's like, it's <laughs> going late until I, it's not late until I say it is. It's probably the best individual moment of acting from Billy Peterson in this one. Like he's like their back and forth feels very natural. They're They're obviously on edge about the right things here. And they both have a point is the thing. Like they both like is as cold as Farina's approach of fuck it. We're it's too late. Let's just get ready for the next crime scene is you totally understand how a seasoned cop like that just kind of comes to that mentality. But Will isn't ready to let go. And I feel like that exchange is probably like the best bit of acting in the entire movie. It's a great scene. I think it it juxtaposes like, yeah, Farina is a cop in that standpoint. He's a good cop. But he sees things in certain is degree of like there's a systemic inevitability to what's about to happen. Um, and it's not his it's beyond his capacity to stop it. Like all you can do now is is get set up on the next one. And yeah, Graham as more the uh, like crusader or, or or the artist in some ways is like this is not done. Like, you know what you know what you unleash when you call me in on this. I can't unplug the way you are. I can't just wait for it to happen. He'll he'll play to the whistle. Um, it's great. It's a great sequence, and it is as they're realizing they got really nothing. That because he's in serial killer mode, and I, I do love this. Um, Peterson goes back into his narrating what the what the criminal is is seeing as he's watching now side by side the two videos uh, that we've been seeing all movie long of the two families uh, at at various events shortly before they were killed. And it dawns on him that everything the serial killer would need to know, everything the serial killer, the serial killer appeared to be acting on in these two crime sprees, is there in these films. That there's things that were inconsistent at the scene uh, that are consistent on the films, and he realizes that it's not that the criminal, it's not that the tooth fairy cased, uh, as he as he put it, like. Either you were casing way farther ahead uh, than than you thought, or you've looked at this film. Um, My man, <laughs> you have seen this, haven't you? My man, it's so good. <laughs> Uh, what is that? What is that? Why is that he is doing Michael that? Mann? That is Michael Mann telling you how he talks to people. That is that is that is the the one little bit of like I this is absolutely how Michael Mann treats people in conversation. He's like, yeah, my man, yeah, like a hundred percent. And Michael Mann always has the glow of the Hancock Tower illuminated behind him while he's doing it. He carries the background around with him <laughs> to make sure he gets that. Which I love. I love how perfectly framed the Hancock Tower is so good. in the like the window behind them. It's like this this very weird room that they're in with the like Florida ceiling all white built in filing cabinets. What? And then there's just like the TV, the glass. The very 80s glass table and then fucking Hancock 
sour taking up the entire window, which I love. I love Farina's like, there's a full, like looking out the window, there's a full moon out. And it's just like, I know you're not seeing much of the moon right now, Dennis. Like, don't front. But, um, yeah. <laughs> that's that's the tower, Dennis. That's, <laughs> just, that's no moon. That's real estate. Um, yeah, so, but he realizes, like, it's the, it, it's because the guy's seen the film and he realizes how the guy see the film. How would he have seen the film from these two families? And he, like, concludes that it is because, uh, and again, yeah, movie sort of reflecting uh, movie making. It's it's the fact that the key to this is, of course, the mise-en-scene of the, the two <laughs> home videos. And that's how Graham uh, is able to crack the case uh, because he realizes the camera sees all. And he realizes that it, the only way this makes sense is that these two films were collected at the same film processing lab. Um, and we get him, even though one of them was was processed by a local like mom and pop photo center as, as Graham points out, like most of these places don't do their own uh, development. And so they, they locate this lab and then we get like just peak. Uh, this is the most Miami vice. I think we get they're aboard the Learjet mm-hmm. and they're on the phone to the local PD. They've got, they've got somebody at the FBI pulling up employee files for, uh, for the film lab. And they're feeding them to the local PD to pull up in the in the local database. And as soon as he sees Dollarhide uh, come through the fax machine, he's like, this is the guy. And they, you know, the cops are going to be way behind the FBI getting the scene. But they they bank hard into into the airport like that Learjet descends like he's doing a carrier landing. Um, the only thing that's not Miami Vice about this is that they get into shitty squad cars like Crown Vic squad cars when they <laughs> land. I feel if like we were in full Miami Vice mode, there would have been like a Ferrari or a, or a Lambo like waiting on the tarmac. Uh, yeah. For, for Graham. But keep in mind, this is all supposed to be rural Missouri that they're in. So yeah. you know, if they had the Lambo there, that might have been a little bit off. True. And also, the only reason that they were allowed to have the the sports cars in Miami Vice is because, of course, you couldn't go undercover as a drug dealer without mm. a sweet ride uh, in the 80s. So that's well, that's Graham has no tops. need for your sweet rides. He just needs to get there. Yeah. Uh, and so they just take off. In pursuit of Dollarhide, and as Man puts it, they shot this basically this entire sequence in one night. Uh, they basically do all the exterior shooting for the uh, arrival at the Tooth Fairy's house. Um, you've got, and here, you know, remember what Lecter said that that Graham is a killer. Farina finds it weird that Graham is loading up his revolver full of hollow, hollow points, um, and Farina's like, dude. Like the SWAT team's gonna get this guy. Like we're just gonna show up and like box him in, and it's done. Graham is not now. It turns out there is a cause for for urgency because uh the two like the dollar hides in there uh with another victim, but Graham doesn't know that. Graham's showing up to kill this guy. Uh, and so to a degree, I'm sitting there like, okay, well, I guess. Guess maybe Dr. Lecter was on to something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, Will Graham's like, finally, legal murder. Oh, it's been so long. And yeah, he has killed someone at this point, right? They, I think they explicitly say that one of the kill- killers that he was hunting at one point, he yeah, did he end up shooting Hobbs. and killing. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. So like he's he's ready to he's ready to get another taste. Uh not just the scent. Um I also enjoy that as they're trying to roll up stealthily on this place, uh the minute you're off the highway, you're in backcountry Missouri. Uh foggy as hell. It's foggy. Like they pull up. I think it looks like car park, but it turns out to be a gulch. Like one of the squad cars just dives <laughs> off a cliff uh, and immediately like knocks out one of the deputies. And the house is creepy as hell. Apparently, like they're shooting it all in one night. It's down to a skeleton crew uh, on the team, according to Michael Mann, because they're running out of money. Uh, people are just not here on the shoot. There's some of the some of the shots. People were squirting bottles of ketchup. <laughs> in order to produce blood splatters. They didn't have squibs. So yeah. like, for instance, when uh dollar hide misses and we get a weird shot of like a bunch of ketchup bottles and mustard bottles and shit blowing up. That's because man and Spinati are off camera whipping these things at the <laughs> kitchen floor to try to make it look like a gun blew them up. Cause there's no special effects guys to do this with the squibs. And they actually managed to cut Peterson with some of the like, shattering glass yeah no shit yeah it sounds like uh, a hell of a shoe this is this is man in this era I guess because uh, Dia you also were sort of tickled by the fact that um, you know he wa- he didn't want to shoot an airplane set so he booked out a plane cabin with his crew and smuggled like camera shit onto the plane this movie is so great because, like, it has all of these weird moments where, like, it keeps moving into different modes. Like, I'm thinking about the scene, the scene right before, you know, this with, with, um, you know, or before the, the airplane scene with, um, uh, the private jet, you know, like, it's like the most Steppenwolf fucking scene possible. Like, it is just like, you know, this is, this is, a, this is, you know, Will Peterson, Dennis Farina are doing a two-man play at Steppenwolf Theater. And then we move to, like, the most Miami Vice shit. And then we get to this, like, weird, like, Chicago Film Festival action weird crime indie film, like, bullshit that's, like, being filmed as, like, you know, like a fucking Robert Rodriguez, like, early career Robert Rodriguez movie. And it's just like, what? What, what movie are we even in now with this, like, kind of climactic sequence here? Um, why does the, why does the one cop car just like drive into a ditch? Like that thing should have been accompanied by the Benny Hill theme. Like it's just so absurd. You watch it and it's almost like, wait, did someone just not know where they were supposed to, like, did someone, did the the driver not know they're blocking? Like, and this is just an accident. What happened here? Quick, just cut in a shot of a guy hitting a windshield. It'll look like it was supposed to happen. And then, you know, like the, the bottles breaking, it's just like, it feels like a, you know, a music video. It does. This is, you know, and then there's like the weird, the way we do these like jump cuts to the same shot, like where like scenes just kind of like shot, just like double up on one another. And so it's just like Spinati has a comment about that. For whatever reason, man was like, let's have a bunch of cameras running at different frame rates to capture this. Right. And yeah. Spinati's I mean, like. And that's why it has this uh, staccato-y, interesting feel. Well, that makes sense. I mean, like, man has has previously been experimenting, you know, with, uh, you know, both like kind of undercranking and overcranking. But he uses all of them at once to show the same thing. It's the weirdest thing. It's very peculiar. I don't know that I've ever seen a gun battle shot that way before. No, yeah. and it's so weird because like like it it feels like it's it does feel like 
that he had like, you know, multiple cameras set up, but also multiple cameras just set up kind of right next to one another. So it's just like off by like an inch. And he's like, let's just use these two scenes back to back. Why? <laughs> what is going on? Because it looks cool and it's the 80s. Fuck it, right? Uh, yeah. And it, but like, it's so, it's just so weird. Even for the time, it is weird. But, but it, he does this. But then meanwhile, he lingers in the most slow motion shot on, I'm not going to say the most obvious stuntman of Michael Mann's career because we haven't done Heat yet, but it is at least in the top two or three of this guy who is definitely not William Peterson, very slowly running toward this window <laughs> and then crashing through it to stop Dollarhide. Meanwhile, Dollarhide's moving at full speed. It is uh, it's a great shot, but that is extremely not William Peterson. No, so, it's... it's- we 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 love having men burst through things in this scene between yes. we got we got dollar hide bursting through you know the 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 lunar paint or the photograph and then we have the cop bursting through it, and finally we have Will Graham jumping through the window this is the thing like he goes and he's like no i'm going to stop this guy and just like you know Dennis Freena can't hear him and i just can't like i think he's, he's just muttering to stop it to himself just over and over guy. and over again just walk it's out such a- it's such an incredible scene. Like, who fucking cares? Like, like, the it's awesome. Like, it's so much more the awesome way to but do he eats it. It is so much shit. He well, yes, through the window I, and just gets ne- rocked. That's the thing. <laughs> I went like the whiplash of this scene is so immense. In which I'm like, you know, I was kind of uh, I was looking at something on my phone and then realized, like, oh shit, like, oh man, it's going down. I'm looking up. Slow mo shot crashing through music is is just sonically like a siren going, and I'm like I'm, I'm cheering on my couch, and he jumps through, and it immediately gets slashed, and I'm just in hysterics, like <laughs> laughing my ass. I was like, "You dumbass! Like you piece of shit! Like what are you doing?" Head is, empty, is, no thoughts, only vengeance. That's it. It is <laughs> incredible. Like I've never been so psyched, and then immediately brought down, which is just like I'm ready for this guy to fuck this serial killer up, and then. And no, actually, this is more likely what would happen is like why you would jump through this this window like a dumbass and then get the shit beat out of you. Uh, unbelievable. And then the fridge falls on him. Like, that is so funny. Like, like there's like like tomatoes squishing like it is. Oh. I cannot tell. And I still don't know how much of that is meant to be comedic because it is tremendously funny. It, it is. It's it's not just darkly funny. It feels like go, like like goofy and playful in a way that I I was I had like the I had to like stop myself laughing. I was just I was just uh, uncontrollable. But I it's, it, what an incredible moment. No, knowing man and his distinct lack of comedy in his oeuvre, I would say that this is probably not what he was going for. That's what given, I mean. But this, is how you make something so- cool. this is how you make something Michael Mann cool as shit. Yeah. With no money and no exactly. time. And no time. That's the thing is that I can totally see him and Spinati and whoever else is on set just frantically being like, what the fuck can we string together here? What can happen to Will here? All right, he gets thrown into the fucking fridge. I don't know. Just throw a couple of cops at him. Just do something. <laughs> he tears through this picture because that's going to look cool. All right, let's just do it. We got two <laughs> hours left. Let's go. And yeah, so they're gaining the- light. And they don't yeah. want to be. This whole thing's supposed to be happening at night. And it, it ends up looking amazing because you start having like the rose colored dawn breaking over the river in the background. But like, you know how delicate that light is. Like yep. about 15 minutes after shooting like wraps, this is going to be like full daylight and they will not be able to shoot the sequence. And so, yeah, the entire thing has this desperation of like trying to race ahead of the sun. 
And that's like the really funny thing is because like this is one of the things that really sticks out sticks out about like kind of the beginning of this sequence is how willing it is to just be like shit dark. And like not like good like cinematic dark, but just like nah, it's dark. We don't have the kind of light the money for lighting that we would normally do, or the way movies would light this normally. We're just gonna embrace just this low contrast blackness and just go with it. And then like you could see it's like slowly creeping in. Well, but and also I I, th- I do think that justifies like why the cop car like m- like ends up going to the gulch because when they turn off their headlights to approach yeah. like stealthily, everything disappears and I'm like I can't see anything and yeah. I won't see anything until they get close to the house again because like Dennis Farina and Will Graham just look lost in the woods. Is Will Graham still wearing that incredible blazer? I think he is. Yeah. Um. That that velour blazer of vengeance uh is is something else. But yeah. So like, and then Graham. After getting ragdolled by Noonan, who you realize like belatedly, like, yeah, he is really big. He big because mm-hmm. he just flips. That's him. a big boy. Yeah. And then is like, well, time to get the shoddy out and does the cool movie, like single hand pump of the mm-hmm. shotgun. And again, these cops are terrible. Like they just get worked. Rob, Rob this um, uh, we had played uh, Stalker earlier uh, that day <laughs> in which uh, there are multiple sequences in which I've. I've gotten through sticky situations of Shadow of Chernobyl by just realizing, well, I'm going to hang around this corner. The AI is just going to line up and I'm just going to shoot him. And I could not get that feeling out of my head of like Dollar Hyde just lining up at the front door and being like, all right, next one up. Like, who wants who wants a shotgun to the chest? And just watching them fly, 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 fly across as they get hit. Um with the, Cops with the ignoring hole. the stacks of dead cops yes. like cordwood. I've the, got, yeah. I've got it. I, I'll, 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 I'll be the one. It's similarly my approach to stalker is the Will Graham approach, where you just just <laughs> burst through the window, ready to go, and just get racked. And then you curl into a ball and wait for uh, people to lose track of you in the fight. And yeah, and then he blows Dollarhide away from like. I'm sorry. I just, I can't. I just keep thinking about fucking. The stuntman fucking Ralph Wigaming his way through that window. I'm never going to like that shot is just. It's the shot of the movie, even if it is not intended to be. It is the yes. shot of the movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By the way, does that look like real plate glass that's breaking apart? Because it sure doesn't look like breakaway glass. That we're I mean, I'm sure it movies. is breakaway, but it does look. You're right. It does look very it sharp. It looks gnarly. Like when he goes through that window, it looks gnarly in a way that's like, ooh, that's not going to be good. That landing ain't going to go right. Yeah. Um, but he, but he gets him, uh, he shoots him from 18 different frame rates. Uh, it's weird. He shoots him multiple times. I'm not sure which is the same shot repeated, whatever, but he, he goes down. Will Graham rescues Reba and she asks, who are you? I'm Will Graham. He's comes back to himself. Director's cut. Mm-hmm. Weird sequence where he visits the family that we've been seeing, Pictures of this woman in the pool that the entire movie I've sort of been assuming was one of the previous victims turns that's out what to I, be the that's, next that victim. Was, I did not know what was going on in that t- sequence other than Will Graham being t- really creepy. <laughs> yeah. So in, the, in the, the theatrical version, and I will say this is the one thing I think is worse in the director's cut than in the in the theatrical version. In the theatrical version, after that, like, I'm Will Graham kind of whisper. They cut to the heartbeat song, but it's still they're still on Dollar Hyde's property. And it is this very it is one of the most Michael Mann shots in the world. It is of, yeah. of forlorn Will Graham shadowed against the dawn light standing on the dock as Dennis Farina kind of walks up 
and then sort of looks at him and then sits down facing away from Graham as the song swells. Oh, like but they here, were in the opening of the film? Uh, it, it's, it's Will is standing. So he's standing yeah. and facing the water. But yes, they are both facing away from each other. And the, the song is swelling and then it cuts to what eventually is, you know, the ending ending. But here they do this cutaway to the family. And I understand why he would maybe think that it would be nice to have this in here because there is kind of a nice little bit of catharsis in there. But it's jarring in this cut, the way they edit it. And it just doesn't feel like there was enough establishing there for any audience member to know who these people are without thinking about it for a minute. And they like he's the least reassuring presence. Oh, yeah. Ever. He's like bloody and bruised and he can barely get a sentence out like. And someone seems to have told them like a serial killer was after them and then didn't yes. tell them that Will Graham was going to show up on the door. And so there he is just being like, hi. I'm Will Graham. I just wanted to look at you. That's all I wanted to do was kind of look at him. They're Nothing like, hey, weird about to, that. You doing all right? You want to come in for coffee? He's like, no. Just needed to see you. And then he goes home to his family and he, he is restored to his family. And yes, then boom, triumphant. Uh, that's that's not actually Peter Gabriel, right? Or is it? No, it's Red Seven is Ten. the name of the band. Yeah. They sound a lot like Peter Gabriel. Yeah. Um. Heartbeat. Yeah. And we get the the Freeze great frame. shot. There's a couple of great shots of it, but this is like the, the iconic one of uh, Billy Peterson, dad, 80 shorts. Uh, I don't know about the rest of you. My dad definitely had those shorts in the 80s. I'm assuming that that's, that was a pretty widespread thing because it seemed like. That was that just was, the length. I, I don't know. that. Yeah, yeah that was like choices in the matter. I think that was just that was shorts. That was what was popular. No, it's really funny because like this, uh, there's like big overtones of like my 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 grandfather was a, a a tall, awkwardly lanky guy from Chicago who retired to this part of Florida and just kind of wore these kinds of shorts and volunteered as a turtle rescue person. So this is like always a very oh, weird shit. moment for. Oh I'm my just god! Like, I'm just like, wow, it's it's it's, it's Grandpa Lucina. <laughs> okay. And yes, and by the way. We saved most of the turtles. That's and my favorite thing, because he promises in the beginning of the movie that they'll all be OK. Most. Sometimes those promises don't bear out. Yeah. Yep. Look, some of those turtles were probably inept cops. Some of them <laughs> were just families that uh, were just surprisingly hot. And, and one of those turtles was definitely going to become a tabloid journalist. So, you know, in yeah. the end, it all kind of it worked. It all, itself it out. all worked out. Uh, and yeah. And then and then a freeze frame. It's a, it's a strange thing. It's a, it's so weird when you see that convention crop up in some of these movies and they can be great movies. But this this belief in the 80s that like we're going to end on a freeze frame of the characters and like and they don't feel like well composed tableaus. They feel like just random freeze frames. Of uh, like, so, like know. that kid might as well have been jumping up and pumping his fist in the air for how just like specific that that frame is. Yeah, um, but it's also such a weird place to stop him. It's just kind of like you know this weird, almost like a, like a Bobby Hill kind of motion like posture yes. for him. Now he, here's a question I, I would like to pose to the group here because this is a thing that has been weighing on my mind a little bit, mm-hmm. and it's it, I don't want to get too conspiratorial here, but I just I want to pose this question. It's it's the question I would ask ask Michael Mann if I could ask him anything about this movie, <laughs> which would probably get me ushered out of the room. My uh, favorite segment of this podcast. Like, what would you ask Michael Mann? <laughs> well, okay, so here's here's what I have. This movie came out in August 1986. By this point, he had been working on uh, Miami Vice for a little bit. 
Uh, and this song, Heartbeat by Red 7, is featured in at least one episode of Miami Vice. I forget which one, but it is in the series. So somewhere along the way, Don Johnson is at least tangentially familiar with the with the song. And apparently he like Michael Mann just liked this band. So I mean, he was probably listening to it on the set of Miami Vice at some point. In September 1986, Don Johnson's album, his first one, featuring the lead single, Heartbeat, also came out one month after this film. It is a different heartbeat. It is a song that was originally recorded by some Australian singer-songwriters that he did a cover of for his album. Here is my question. Did at some point in the making of Manhunter, Don Johnson come to Michael Mann and say, Yo, Mike, I wrote this song. I got this song for you. If you want to put this in your movie, I got this heartbeat for you. And then did Michael Mann walk away from that conversation and just put the other heartbeat in his movie because the Don Johnson version is not very good. <laughs> and then just and then just bareface it out, be like, "Oh fuck, dude, we got the guy got confused." I told him like, "Hey, make sure Don's song is in there." He grabbed the wrong, <laughs> grabbed the wrong heartbeat. But Looks we already like did God. the licensing. I mean, how many songs were called Heartbeat in the eighties? Apparently, I, so I looked this up on the Wikipedia, and I can't believe this is a detail in there. Or I think it was the the Miami Vice wiki or something. Don Johnson's "Heartbeat" is the only song named "Heartbeat" to chart on the Billboard Top 100. I just found. Okay, hold on. I get like. <laughs> I just found it on, on title. Well, I'll listen to it later. But yeah. I'm now, it's, now I'm it's not a great curious. song. Don Johnson Probably is not a great singer. He was he was he was doing that Jeremy Renner heat check. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's that would get you. That would get you ushered out. Here's the other thing, though. I think this is also the movie where, like, there's still elements of like, man, man is still in his like synthwave Michael Mann. Like, it's not quite like I'm going to do everything here with Tangerine Dream, but it's still got like that vibe in places. Oh, totally. But I think he's also thoroughly in the process, Alex, of turning to that guy that you think he is throughout the 90s and 2000s of sun visor full of sweet CDs mm-hmm. in his car. And that's just like the score for everything. And I think you start, it's starting to happen. We're yeah, like, he's losing touch with genuine cool. He's losing touch with like great synthwave stuff. And he's starting to become like a mainstream 80s pop music guy. And he's like, this just goes with everything. I it's just like just, these bands. So they're going to be in my shit. Yeah. And it's, it's starting to happen. And Michael of course, Mann's it would, AOR phase. <laughs> yep. And it would be happening because. This is why Miami Vice was so cool. People were like, it wasn't just that like Miami Vice was a a unusually like strong show for the era. It was also that like you heard the best music with the coolest editing. And so like it became this whole cultural phenomenon. And so it's not surprising that by this point, Michael Mann, you do what you get rewarded for. It's not surprising that like in the middle of this, like slightly sometimes artsy film about like a criminal profiler, he's also like, but we need some sweet jams. Yeah. And uh, some some good music video sequences. Uh, and so I think that sets us up well for our delve into TV Michael Mann. Yes. Uh, we're going to get into some of the at least the the pilot of uh, of Miami Vice. I don't know if we're going to de- deal with the whole UOG Miami Vice heads. Well, no, like, I don't know if we can deal with the whole Calderon like saga. Uh Yeah. <laughs> But we'll we'll touch we'll touch on elements of it. And I think we might want to check out Crime Story. Yeah, I, I've never seen Crime Story and I've, I've always been curious about it. Oh, and and L.A. Takedown is happening somewhere in here, right? Yeah, I think yeah. L.A. Takedown we can say for when we're queuing up heat. Yeah, just because okay. 
they are so connected uh, for obvious reasons. But I think, you know, like a Miami Vice crime story one and, you know, a few select episodes from each would uh, would make for some good discussion. Oh, wait, L.A. Takedown is literally that movie. Yeah. Like Wayne Grow is in LA Takedown. No, it's Heat, dude. It's his yeah. rough draft of Heat. <laughs> this is fucked. Okay, I didn't know that. Also, like it uh Peterson was approached. He's like, hey, you wanted this movie Heat with me? And then man is like, ah, you're not right for that. You're right for Manhunter. Weird. So Peterson was almost this close to being in LA Takedown. Seems like that might have been a better move. Uh than Well, when you see LA Takedown, you will know that yeah. <laughs> they, they probably should have gotten Billy Peterson for that. All right. Uh, so, yeah, so I think the next stage, though, is to, to delve into uh, the iconic 80s TV hit Miami Vice and sort of see what made Michael Mann the kind of guy who could write his own ticket in Hollywood and probably like lays the groundwork, not just for Manhunter, but like the run of great films he's going to unleash uh, in the 90s, leading off with the one that I think will probably be the hardest sell Uh which is Mohicans, uh, a historical epic about a war that Americans knew nothing about and largely centered on uh, indigenous people. So we will we will get to that. But first, we do have to go into the neon abyss of uh, of Miami Vice. Oh, I'm ready. Yeah, that's exciting. I am, too. I am so I'm so scared because like, I remember loving that show when I was a little kid. But that's basically because I liked watching Crockett and Tubbs like drive around in sports cars and like all of it just washed over me. And I have a suspicion that like it was not as subtle or sophisticated as I remember. Um, no, it's no. a cop procedural. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but it's a cool one. All right. So we will we will get into that uh, at some point on on uh man hunting we will figure out which episodes we're gonna we're gonna single out but i think that will complete our look at manhunter uh where do we rank it among y'all have seen more of these than i have in terms of the lector verse best movie second best movie two apples and oranges i think it's i i i maybe have like a little bit more of just like a sentimental thing toward lambs just because it was the first one I saw. And also, you know, I mean, it's, it's a well-made movie and Jodie Foster is extremely good in it, but I don't know. I think like just as a pure, like crime thriller, serial killer thriller, I think like maybe Manhunter is my favorite one of of the bunch. Uh, I mean, the the Hannibal show is like everything I want out of a thing. That's like Um, good Dexter, right? Yeah. Yes. And every episode like Dexter. Yes. And like and literally, you know, the acquainter, like, you know, like murder is art. Like, it's just a beautiful show with like a bunch of amazing act. I mean, you get, you know, uh, it's just yeah, it's Hannibal is probably what it is. For, it was probably Silence Lance for me before because that was like one of the movies that scared the shit out of me as a kid. Right. Like that yeah. was the kind of movie that your parents watched with you it's like oh sounds the lamb like it's not a horror movie like we can watch that with you know the kids and because he's he likes spooky stuff and it's like that movie fucked me up like no mm-hmm. actually like probably probably i was not have. allowed near that movie and by the time i was old enough i just like the moment had passed like hannibal was kind of this slightly corny pop culture character so i don't yeah. get back to it um damn curious like where does it rate and also is the lecturers good like are, the, are these novels really good they're really fun. Um, like the thing about like how fuzzy, yeah. I I I actually ended up coming off really fondly with the Hannibal series because it is so willing to be batshit. Like the Hannibal Hannibal series, like it is almost like a, it's a fulfillment of the bullshit from the novels, the bullshit from like Manhunter the movie, and then also like 
the promise that was never fulfilled of like David Bowie's outside album, which was David Bowie wanted to make sci-fi a sci-fi version of seven basically as a concept mm-hmm. album. What? Okay. It's great. Do it. <laughs> um, and like, it kind of like takes, it takes all of that shit and turns it into a series that you can watch and just go, what the even fuck is this show? Like the number one thing you say watching Hannibal is just what the fuck this show. Are you fucking mm-hmm. kidding me? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's great for that. So I think the show actually probably takes it for me. Um, Silence is probably my favorite of the movies just because that was like my mom was like, you know, okay, you're 10. I know your stepfather lets you watch like Robocop and the Predator and shit like that, but you want to watch something real fucked up. (laughs) Oh my God. And then putting Silence of the Lambs on for me. Um, God damn. Yeah. What is going on in the Lassina house? It's like Tommy. That was the Lap Van Grossbeck house. So, you know. Yeah. But um, yeah, so that was that was silence really definitely kind of holds that ground for me. Manhunter, I really love it photographically, and I love some of like the moments in it. But like even watching it this last time, I don't know that it really holds up as a film for me that much. Um not in a Hannibal verse way. I think it might be a, a, a solid procedural, but I'm not sure. That's that where I, I that's where I land on it. Like if I want to sit down and watch something Hannibal, like I, I from think the, it's like, definitely like even the even given the fact that um, Hannibal the movie was just like uh, Ridley Scott wanted a to get paid to take a vacation to to Italy. Um, <laughs> like it's bad, but. I think as far as adaptations go, Manhunter's probably like the least effective. I mean, it's the least adapty. Of it really bunch. is. It is yeah. Michael yeah. Mann deciding to make his own thing kind of within yeah. the wire work of, of Harris's stuff. But Harris, like you said, Harris's stuff is so much more over the top, kind of grand green all sort of like, you know, very elaborate horror and, and really nasty imagery. And I do Michael wonder, Mann is not going to do that. Yeah, I do, though, wonder if, if the keep had worked out. Right. If Michael Mann would have leaned into the weird yes. bullshit. Yeah, it's a good point. There are, time, there are points in this movie that I'm like, I'm reminded of the keep. But then it's like, man is also like, his fingers have been burned. And he's just not going <laughs> to pulling back that mode. Well, I was, kind of, I was kind of waiting for like, maybe that this movie would have just one gorse. Like one, sort of like the keep, you know, like has like the, you know, the heads exploding, like the, the really kind of cool, like gore shots, but it's frequent and a bunch of it was cut and never finished. And I kept waiting like, well, maybe in this movie, there'll just be one. And like, that's why it'll be effective in the way, same way that the, like the flaming <laughs> wheelchair is effective is you're just not expecting it. These yeah. movies tend to telegraph, Hey, gore hounds. Uh, and, I'm even, I'm, and I'm not even, I don't mean that's about condescending. Cause like I am that person. Um, but these movies, you communicate like, here's what you're here for. Like want to see a bunch of gross squibs and prosthetics. Like, yeah, I do. Uh, and it would have been interesting in this film for that to just show up kind of out of nowhere um, because it's it's not the otherwise not the kind of film that it is. I think it works fine without it, but I was I was kind of expecting some of that because of having seen enough of it in the keep that it's like, all right, like he can shoot that like he can fit it into his film. And then he goes on to a movie where it would not be out of character for, you know, a shot or two of that to to have appeared. But but I do think like I think it's not just that his his fingers were burned from the keep. Like I do think one of the things that runs through man's work is 
a and I, I think some of these themes come up in Black Hat actually. For all my issues, with Black Hat, I think Black Hat is the one where like explicitly the villain enunciates this view of like um, a bit like the Harry Lime speech in the Third Man of just like the pure indifference of like turning people into matter, into profit, into pleasure. Um, I think man genuinely de- on a deep seated level, despite the fact that a lot of movies have these like incredible tableaus of violence and, and uh, monstrousness, he does have this like really humanist view. And so I think like genuinely, I, I suspect there is something in the way a lot of the serial killer genre goes that would be aesthetically and like thematically repugnant to man's work. Uh, because so much of it is about not just like the change in presentation, but also the change in uh, perspective and like what the fantasy is, which is like, oh, the serial killer is the most interesting thing here. Uh, oh, like the the aesthetics of the crime itself are what's fascinating. And man's actually fascinated by the the work of like bringing the person in, bringing them down. But like I think the thing he, he tries to hammer home a lot is like dollar hide is not particularly interesting he's not particularly deep he's just a guy um a really a really broken guy but not even in interesting ways uh it's just he's, he's kind of a pathetic figure who like looms very large at points but in the end uh you know is 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 very small um and I, and <laughs> it's I, just a dude with a shotgun <laughs> yeah and like ends up just like you know like trash on the floor of his kitchen, uh, you know, surrounded by cops. And I, and I, I don't think he would get into the like serial killer mythologizing that characterizes a lot of the genre from there. Uh, so I, I, I think that that's another thing inhibiting man from leaning into that, which is that for, for him in a lot of this movie, like it is the sympathies lie with like the victims and, what people like this do to others. And I think by the time you're in Hannibal land, it's like, <laughs> all right, how are you yep. going to kill this person? Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, you ready for some blood? You sick fucks. Yeah. Uh, yay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, I, I am curious. Uh, like I, I think, you know, serial killers come up again in man, uh, like Wayne grow is one in heat. Um, he's a serial killer who his day job was like taking down scores badly, uh, mm-hmm. but his real passion is like spree killing. Um, so like it, it comes up again, uh, but yeah, it's not a theme he's going to revisit, but man, we'll be interested in stuff like people who kill masses of people for profit uh, right. for other forms of reward. Um, and, and the sort of people who bring those people down. So again, you can see a lot of, uh, directions that, that man's going to move in from here, uh, as he's actually about to leave kind of his Miami vice period behind. Uh, so this is the most aesthetically Miami vice film he's going to make, uh, probably ever, including Miami vice when he remakes it. Like Mm -hmm. that's a interesting, different take on the source material that we'll, we'll get to in time. Uh, but that's all to come on uh, Manhunting. Uh, next up, we will let you know which episodes of Miami Vice we're going to check out. Um, I'm pretty confident we are not going to do a full series rewatch. Five seasons um, is a lot to ask, I'm re- just going to say. <laughs> reasonably confident. We might only look at like the pilot and a couple episodes and call it a day. Yeah. And I, I think we do need to check out Crime Story because that is a film he architected. That is a... Uh, a TV series he architected did very little directing on, uh, but a lot of his series regulars pop up in there. Uh, so yeah. that is the Michael Mann ensemble troupe uh, sort of taking the field. 
um, it rolls. That'll do it for uh, for today's episode. Thanks to all of you for listening and, of course, for supporting us on uh, Waypoint Plus. Uh, we'll be back with Miami Vice once we give you the episode rundown and uh, choose for ourselves what we're, what we're going to do here. Um, I hope I don't fall. hope this doesn't awaken some 80s nostalgia in me, uh, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. Until then, you're so sly, but then so am I. I can't fucking believe you. Fuck you. <laughs> Very good. Hell fuzzy, yeah.